from uh, 92FM tonight. It feels like a nice, clean little band. Oh, no, excuse me. Price is right. I like the idea that a voice can just go somewhere. Uninvited. Dirty thoughts and nice, clean minds. Guess who? It's me again. It's five o'clock. You care what the mainstream media says? What's up, fam? You out there? You listening? What's up, fam? Hope all is well. It is, uh, what's today, Tuesday? Uh, President Trump is wrapping up his speech right now. We're going to head straight to that, and then we're going to watch Selection Code. I got about a two-and-a-half-hour show for you guys lined up for today. Stand by. We're going to watch the, the end of President Trump's speech here. Outlapping China at levels that they never thought possible. China always thought they were going to be the world's biggest economy by 2018, 2019 at the latest, and they weren't even close because we were outdistancing something that they never thought could happen. But soon we will have greatness again. With all my heart and all my soul, I firmly believe that the American people will reject a fate of decline, demoralization, and ultimately a fate of defeat. And I believe that we will come together and choose instead a future of renewal, revival, recovery, resurgence, and in the end, a nation that is more exceptional than it ever was before. I believe we can do that. America's story is far from over. And in fact, we are just getting ready for an incredible comeback, a comeback that we have no choice but to make. We don't have a choice. We won't have a country if we don't make it. Through strength, we will restore our safety. Through hard work, we will rebuild our prosperity. Through courage, we will reclaim our liberty. Through love, we will repair our unity. Through success, we will rediscover our pride. And through unyielding determination together, we will make America stronger, safer, freer, greater, and more glorious than ever before. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. It's been a great honor. Thank you. Come back, sir. Please. Please. <laughs> like like tomorrow can we, or today, can you just stay there in D.C., just go straight to the White House and just go ahead and be like, hey, um... We're gonna go ahead and just uh, take over from here. Thanks for your uh, thanks for playing, but uh, yeah, have a nice day. So you can go back to Delaware and hide forever, and um, wait for the uh, U.S. Marshals to come get you. So uh, go ahead and do that, Mr. President, if you don't mind. Just head straight to the White House from there, and uh, just tell him Abe sent you. Just say, uh, yeah, you guys, you ever heard of uh, this guy named Uncensored Abe? Yeah, he said just go ahead and come over here and, and tell you guys to go ahead and. And pack your bags and go ahead and go ahead and go home. <laughs> uh, 
miss, I miss him so bad. You know, I really do. All right, they're not they're not piping in her audio. I, I do, I'm going to monitor this for a second and see um, see if anything else comes from this. It's interesting that the American First Policy Institute invited President Trump to speak. Um, there are no shortage of never Trumpers in the American First Policy Institute that uh, have been working about against President Trump uh, from the beginning. Um, how about one more big round of applause for President Donald J. Trump? As we are wrapping today and as you are moving back to your lives and out of this hotel, we just want to thank everyone for joining us. America First Agenda, we will save this country. God bless you all and have a great day. Thank you. So, yeah, just go ahead and go. Um, if you could uh, notify the Secret Service detail to uh, go ahead and just take President Trump to the White House, that'd be great. And um, we'll look forward to his first uh, State of the Union speech uh, as soon as possible. <laughs> Please, can we, can, can we have that reality happen? Is that too much to ask? <laughs> uh, it's good to see you guys working your way over here today. I got a lot to get to today. I'm probably going to go two and a half, maybe even close to three hours today. Uh, wife's at work. I got a lot of important stuff we need to talk about. There's a lot of stuff that's happening right now. President Trump's speech just wrapping up. Uh, he spoke eloquently about a lot of important topics. So hopefully you guys caught that. If you missed his speech, make sure you check it out later on tonight. It's it's worth your time. It, re it really is. Um, I like that he's changing it up a little bit. Uh, I like that he's, he's working very hard to, um, you know, <laughs> to do his thing. So, um he talked a lot about a lot of important things today. And, um, he said, uh, you still need somebody in the white house or it's going to get, uh, or it's not going to get done. And I think that help will be forthcoming and it's going to be a lot sooner than people think. That was an interesting part of what he had to say today. Um, <clears throat> he said, uh, he did, he did, he did the trans story again. That was freaking hilarious. He was even funnier this time. Um, <clears throat> Trump called for legislation to allow the president to send the National Guard into the most violent criminal neighborhoods. We, we tried the soft approach for too long. I agree, Mr. President. Uh, I think we need to start uh, um, <clears throat> sending messages to these governors and state's attorneys. If they don't follow the law, uh, they'll be held to pay. So that's the biggest part of um, of President Trump's speech today. He, he also talked uh, about important legislation ideas that we have been talking about here on the show uh, with our fellow group of activists here as well. So a lot of good stuff from President Trump today. It's, it's always good to hear from him, and I look forward to uh, seeing him in the White House tomorrow. So that's the plan. The plan is to go ahead and send President Trump straight to the White House from here and just let them know that we don't need uh, the Bidens. We don't need them anymore. So you guys can just go ahead and go home. Um, so that's the plan uh, for today. <laughs> I wish. Uh, all right. So here's the plan. We can't wait years. I, I agree. Um, you know, he also said several times in 2024, um, I, I, I'm not going to fall for the selective hearing of, <laughs> of Anans. I'll just put it that way. Um, he also said several times in 2024. So you don't see any of those videos being put out there, but he also did say that several times. So we'll see what happens. Um, I still have a lot of hope and prayers that he does come back before, before 2024, but, um, I'm just looking at it in the most analytical way I can seeing all the information and I still don't see it happening. So, uh, what we're going to do today, 
the the movie selection code, the documentary by the Epoch Times, is going to be released uh, for free tonight at midnight. Uh, but I have a copy of it, and I want to watch it. So I, you guys want to watch um, Selection Code and analyze it and, and make some make some trust tapes plan. <laughs> JC Bird, thank you for the coffees today, brother. God bless you, man. Um, so I really want to watch Selection Code. Um, the problem is it's an hour and 40 minutes. Then I have my brother, Robert Patrick Lewis, an interesting 20-minute um, summary uh, that we could do, but we could also just kind of skip past that. And then I have like seven articles about the FBI that we have to talk about. We definitely have to read and talk about Senator Grassley's letter to Garland and Ray. We're going to read that in its entirety. Um, we have to read Technofog's stack. We have to read Molly's got a new article up. Margo's got a new Cleveland an article up. All of those are important reads that I, I have to read for my personal information and knowledge and I haven't had time to read yet, and I think it'd be good, be good to get that to you guys today. Then from there, I have about 10 articles and information from around the world today that's important, and then we're, as always, we're going to get into the breaking news today. So that's the plan that I have today. If you guys are are not interested in seeing Selection Code, just tell me, and and we can skip that. I have, I, I have two hours of stuff, at least, that we can get through today. Um, so let me know if you guys are in, in, in for a selection code, watch and analyze and, and kind of dissect it a little bit. It's going to take about a, a good two hours to do that. And then we'll get to the FBI stuff at about six o'clock or so just before six. So that's what I have planned for today. If you guys are against that, please speak up and chat and let me know. And then we won't do that. Um, something is going on with my fan inside my computer and that is scaring the shit out of me. So hopefully uh, the stream survives today so I can tear my, uh, computer tonight and see what's going on there uh let's do the reads first and then watch the movie um i it kind of the way that i have it set up in my mind is is to is to summarize all of that and then bring the fbi into it so that's kind of the plan for that yeah you love the shorts don't you check out the legs i got i'm doing i'm going to go into the hot tub scene here pretty soon i'll just start wearing uh my speedos <laughs> uh most of you are seeing yes go ahead and do whatever you have planned uh you guys are are very generous and in, in your time in that front i just you know uh, it, you guys can always go watch this on your own time but i i think it'd be fun for us as a team to analyze and and uh you know hit key points in chat and um and together we can make sure that we find the most important parts of this and you know given the january 6th crap that's going on out there I figured it'd be a good uh, be a good time to do that today. So let me know what you guys think about that. That's what I have planned. Let me get the business out of the way here quick, and then we'll get to that. Everyone out there at foxhole.app, what is going on out there? It's good to see you guys um, in the house. Uh, let's see. Blue Eyes Open already has a question out there. White Hat is in the house. Brother, I miss you too, man. I hope all is well. I hope you're hanging in there. Um, if you get a chance Friday, bro, around this time, if you're free, if you can, call in and, and just good, let's catch up, man. Fridays are always my day for Patriot Roundtables and just whoever wants to hop in. Um, if you're free, hop in there. Blue Eyes Open asked a question. Alan, do you think, what do you think about the people calling out Greg Phillips on true social your thoughts uh tori's a fucking dumb bitch and you should not listen to anything she has to say or any of the people around her that's what i think and i think people are they're they're used to um kind of anons staying uh, in their anon world and they're used to them fighting like uh with words and stuff when you start fucking with the wrong people and greg is somebody that you don't want to fuck with 
and you, he starts getting an army of people behind him, they, these people have no idea what the fuck they're doing. So if you want to know the truth about all that, I don't understand why anybody still watches Tori or even has anything to do with her. She has been misleading people and making misinformation comments for her whole time. She, she is all about clickbait. She is all about spinning narratives to get people riled up. She uses emotion in her in her show to get people riled up. And then in the meantime, she comes to ridiculously stupid conclusions with a half-baked off her fucking ass. Um, that's what happens when you... Um, when you sit around and smoke weed all fucking day, in my opinion. So that's what I have to say about that. Um, and that's all I'm going to say about that. Um, I cannot wait to meet Greg and talk more about this in person. And <laughs> that will be fun to put some minds together that have been observing these fucking idiots for a long time. So there you go. You, you know me, I will give you a direct answer. That's what I think. Um, bitch, Toria, um, Politius, uh, let's see. Let me let me catch up over here real quick. Uh, let's go, Brandon. Fake Joe is a white. <laughs> it's good to see you out there, bro. Hope all is well. Uh, blue eyes open. Thanks for being here. Thanks for the question. Timber Jets in the house. Uh, JC Bird dropping a can on me and in f- a bunch of coffee on me yesterday. I got I got coffee for the month, bro. Thank you. Thank you for helping to support uh, the trip to um, to uh, the pit. I cannot wait to uh, to go to the pit and bring you guys the information. Maybe even that night. Maybe even Saturday night. Uh, I'll, I'll do a stream we'll see we'll see but um you know you never know how that how that works out if not when as soon as i come back we're going to debrief and we're going to get you guys involved in whatever's going on out there carrie lakes in the house as well and you guys are jumping like crazy over there today uh jc bird whitehead and bitch toria thank you guys all for the gold pills over there already thanks guys for being here today i appreciate it um Everyone over there on uh, on Rumble, thanks for being here today, guys. I see you guys working your way in here today as well. Uh, Chris and Politius, thank you guys for dropping all the links out there. I appreciate you guys very much. I was watching this on PSB. Yeah, nice. It, it was a great speed. He did hit on everything, just Mojo. I hope all is well. Hope you hope you're doing okay. He asked uh, what happened to DC to turn into Tent City. I agree. I agree. It was the it, it is a beautiful town uh, for all the evil that it portrays. <laughs> uh, so I agree with you. But good to see you guys out there, Stally girls out there, and many others lurking over there on Rumble. Thanks for being here today guys and the twitch crowd working their way in as well t-rex thank you for the resub i appreciate that much love the kawasaki kid with a new follow thank you for, for the new follow jc bird drafting a, a gift in a, a one month tier sub to m rich thank you for that m rich is a great patriot as you know uh, it's great to have uh, a great audience out there thank you for that and then also yesterday i missed uh, another gifted sub from jc bird so thank you for that brother uh your support of um of streamers and alternative news and alternative platforms is amazing bro and i think you that says a lot about your heart man you you all you guys out there, but, um, some of you guys are, are just, um, very generous and, um, you're, you're very godly people. And I, I, I just, uh, you're, you know, you're, you're a, a, um, a standard set, a standard bearer of, of how, of why I want to do, do right by you guys. You know what I'm saying? Uh, because you guys are just, just top notch Patriots, man. And I appreciate you guys so much. Everything you guys do to, um, to help us is, is just amazing. And we can't do it without you. And so I appreciate it very much. So if you can, do me a favor out there. Share the stream. Tell somebody to come hang out. We're going to watch uh, Selection, uh, the the real story of January 6th. Um, so that's out there today. And then uh, Selection Code's out there also. Uh, that drops tonight, so I'm looking forward to that. So uh, let's hop to that here pretty quick, if you guys don't mind. I, I don't see any strong objections out there to, on that front. So, um, Hey, one Scott's in the house. Good to see you. Uh, we knew you before you were famous, Abe. <laughs> 
Max Uno's in the house. An OG from way back. Good to see you out there. Timber Jet, uh, God bless you, Abe. God bless us all. Indeed, God bless you, Timber Jet. Thank you for the for the cookie. I appreciate that. Show me Rose. Much love and blue eyes open. God bless and God bless you as well. Um, so all right, guys, you want to hop to it here? I, I think it'll be fun, man. I think we can kind of uh, analyze and check it out. So without further ado, let's roll the tape, as my brother Z Patriot says out there. Good to see you out there as well. Desert Beauty and Bonnie's Trumpet. Bonnie, thank you again for the uh, for the support as well. Um, I got the yesterday I got my plane ticket and my uh, – my rental car booked um wednesday we have our our initial debriefing um in the afternoon so i'll tell you guys a little bit about what i can tell you on that front um i'm not going to tell you what city i'm going to i'm not even gonna tell you what state i'm going to um we, I'm going to keep uh, it as tight as possible. So, but I'll know Wednesday more about uh, how much the hotel room is going to cost because I got a feeling it could be a pretty penny. So I might need a little bit more, a little bit more of your guys' support uh, to get uh, to get the rest of the stuff caught up. But I appreciate you guys very much. Thank you all very much. Uncensoredaid.com is the website, so check that out when you guys get time. <clears throat> Excuse me, my throat's all messed up. Uh, you can find everything you need to do over there. This podcast, you can find the merchandise, you can find how to how to help support the show, how to help keep the lights on, Cash App, PayPal, Patreon, as well as buy me a coffee. And don't forget to check out mypillow.com backslash Abe when you get time. I appreciate you guys' support. I see you guys pretty much almost every day somebody puts an order, or every week, I should say, somebody puts an order in. So thank you guys very much for that. Check out the new sandals if you guys get time. Those look pretty cool. They're down to tw- they're down to $30 with promo code, discount code Abe. And you can get yourself some of those sandals that are now thirty dollars. They were they were fifty yesterday. So there you go. The the the, the sale on the sandals is is cooking now. So check that out when you get time. Um, also, they got the buy one get one free towel sets, my pillows, all that good stuff out there as well. And once again. Just Mojo helping uh, helping send send me to the pit as well. Thank you, Just Mojo, for your support. I appreciate you. You've always been an amazing patriot as, as well. Thank you so much, and thank you for helping to you know kind of kick me going, get me going with with raising money. I, I hate doing that. I, I hate saying, "Hey, I need this amount of money to go send me somewhere." But it's I, I, honestly, <laughs> it's the only option I have. So thank you guys very much. All right, let's check this out. The real story of January sixth. Um, it's about an hour and 40 minutes, and I'm going to do a sound check here and make sure that everything is good to go. And we have no sound, it looks like, so... Deer hunting. You drag out a deer carcass. Hey! We need more He was completely out of control. He himself was committing crimes in the process. People from all over the nation, from every state. There has been a lot of fraud. He could stop this. At least one person over here is being injured and taken away. Capitol Hill, overtaken by America. The story of January 6th changes drastically, depending on who's telling it. The House Select Committee on January 6th has deemed the incident an attack on the American system comparable to the bombing of Pearl Harbor, or even the terrorist attacks on 9-11. It's being investigated as a potential insurrection that could allegedly incriminate former President Donald Trump. And it's being used domestically to frame a new narrative on domestic extremism. Yet is this narrative really the case? Imagine if the American people actually saw just what happened to Roseanne Boylan and these officers who keep portraying themselves as heroes that day. He fires at her and strikes her in the left shoulder. It's a failure not only of training, but it's also a failure of bystandership and supervision. 
January 6th demands a full and impartial investigation, one free from foregone conclusions, hidden agendas, and naked hyperbole. The nation needs a serious examination of January 6th, one that includes the subjects too often ignored in media coverage and in political speech. With interviews, on-the-ground reporting, and exclusive footage, we'll now tell the real story of January 6th. Yeah, we're on the ellipse now. We'll meet you soon. Good stuff. Thank you. To begin this investigation, I sat down with Joe Hanneman, the lead reporter on January 6th at the Epic Times, to review our footage. January 6th started out as a protest, uh, a large gathering to hear President Trump speak about his concerns and his charges that there was widespread fraud of the presidential election. Uh, people came in very large numbers to the Ellipse in Washington, D.C. to hear his speech. We will never give up. We will never concede. It doesn't happen. You don't concede when there's theft involved. Stop the steal. His speech ran long, or his appearance went over time. And I think that caused some issues over at the Capitol because there were people gathered over there who were already in the process of breaching some of the security lines before the president had stopped speaking. So the people that were encouraged to go to the Capitol peacefully and made their voices heard were largely still over listening to the president when some of these uh, unusual things happened on the Capitol grounds. It really goes to the heart of other unusual happenings that day, the role of suspicious actors in various places around the Capitol, and all of which lead you to the conclusion that a deeper look is needed to really define that, what January 6th is, because we're still trying to define it. People are talking about violence on January 6th. Believe they How call did that the a police flag. factor into this? I mean, who was really instigating things? Which side? Well, there was plenty of police uh, provocation. The initial use of explosive munitions that day that started at about 1.25 in the afternoon, where the police launched explosives into the crowd, which was pretty much just milling there and standing. And these were very loud, deafening. And some of them had projectiles. Uh, I was literally right there. Pellets that that was right behind and, me. And uh, some had tear gas in them. But when they landed in the middle, they caused injuries and they got a very angry response. That was a large crowd. From what I saw, there was quite a few older people in that crowd. And they fired munitions far to the back. People that wouldn't have known what was going on up front. So this created an atmosphere that I think percolated through the rest of the day. And they continued firing into this crowd for well over an hour using those, what I would call, heavy munitions. So I don't know what their strategy was in using munitions, which uh, they had said they were not going to use the less than lethal force munitions and things like that. On Resulting in a heart attack and the death of somebody, by the way. Were the actions of the Capitol Police out of line? Were there violations in use of force? And what are the legalities of this? We spoke with Stan Keffard, one of the nation's top experts on police use of force and one of the top-rated expert witnesses in court cases on crowd control. Keffard has 42 years of law enforcement experience, including as security director for the 1984 Summer Olympics in Los Angeles. He served as an officer, detective, undersheriff, and chief of police 
at jurisdictions in Arizona, California, and Missouri. He has testified more than 350 times in federal, state, and tribal courts. Supervisory failure, a frontline supervisor, a sergeant, or whoever's in control, a lieutenant, should have put those people in posted positions or in a skirmish line or in a defense posture, put them between the objective that they were protecting and the crowd. That wasn't being done. That was a shooting gallery up there, a congregation of officers. I didn't see a supervisor among them who were using these munitions to inflict harm uh, and injury on people below them. It's egregious. Rubber bullets have the potential to put an eye out. Shooting down into a crowd at the head level, which is the first primary target that would be hit by those rubber bullets, runs the risk of having somebody's eye put out or having them permanently disfigured. Impact front on from ground level is designed to hit somebody in the chest or lower so that it will sting and put them in flight. That is the design and purpose of the tool. These are people who largely support police law and order back the blue, so they did not understand why they're being fired upon. These were throughout the crowd, so there was definitely a stirring the pot effect. And, and eventually it, it did come to a boil in certain areas. Oh, oh, oh! The protester was climbing the wall. He had seen somebody put a giant American flag up on the scaffolding for inauguration. And he wanted to put his Trump flag up. He scaled the wall and when he got up there, he didn't have a chance to put the flag up. A couple officers took swipes at him over the rail and missed him. But then he actually got into a standing position and a, a motorcycle police officer from Capitol Police came up with a pretty good stride and shoved him. And he fell at least 20 feet and was seriously injured. That was witnessed by a lot of people. And then when they carried him out, a lot of the crowd saw the after effects of that and they were very upset. My analysis of a police officer pushing somebody off the wall is that that individual is committing a crime, a very serious crime, again, putting that person's life at risk. It is unconscionable for an officer to do such a thing. The officer is required to take that person off the wall, strip cuff them, take them into custody and arrest them. What is happening here? Why is this officer behaving like this? And he's, his behavior seems to be a lot different from the other officers. He stood out to us because of uh, he, almost in a manic state. He was looking for more munitions. He had used his up and so he was going to fellow officers and grabbing their munitions, whether it was a taser cartridge or it was uh, one of the grenades that they use with the, the hard plastic pellets. Hey! We need more munitions! We did not see that from other officers, where it was, and as soon as he got one, he'd pull the pin and he would lob it into the crowd and you'd hear it explode. He was completely out of control. A supervisor should have stopped him, got him out of that area, and he himself was committing crimes in the process. Three ACD deployments, I got another taser. If you tase somebody, you're obligated to cuff them, now that you've neutralized them, arrest them, and that's not what he was doing. He was using those devices to punish people, not to arrest them. 
and that is unconscionable. Hey, Rich. Put him up the scaffolding. Just go. Just shoot. What the Shit. It's a failure not only of training, but it's also a failure of bystandership and supervision. An officer who is placed at risk of being injured or killed because of the action of another officer who precipitated a circumstance that began to be dangerous because he wanted to arrest the person, uh, has a stake in that and would go to the officer and say, I'm going to report you to the sergeant. I don't appreciate that. You put us at risk because of what you were doing. I'm upset with you. But munitions come basically in two types. There are burning grenades and there are blast dispersion grenades. This appears to be blast dispersion, which caught fire. And if you fire them at an individual rather than hitting the ground close to them, you run the risk of incurring injury to that individual that you're trying to A, disperse or B, immobilize so you can arrest. If you do, that explosion at a face level could blind a person, it could deafen them for life, it could do both. And that is what was depicted here in this film script. There is no tactical reason at all. This is something that is you're showing intent by shooting at that level. It was also evident to me that the crowd was angry. The one finger salute that was being given by that activist was a clear indication that they were mad. So what you've done is you've constructively created a problem that you started out to disperse or arrest people with. You have yep. uh, On purpose. not addicted what your mission was in the first instance, which was to disperse that crowd, get them back, because the chemical munitions were having effect on them uh, and not to uh, do something that is, uh, in my mind, sadistic and um, wrong, just wrong. Do we know anything about this incident where the bomb goes off in the crowd that this officer threw? Well, I'm not sure that particular grenade, uh, if we know what the result was, but others, they fell in amidst two gentlemen who fairly shortly after had cardiac events. One, I believe, was a stroke, the other was a heart attack. That loud of a retort in, I don't certainly can't say that that medically triggered it, but a stimulus like that, anybody that's... It absolutely did. I watched it happen. He collapsed right quickly. after that landed right in front of him. They were carried out and both of them eventually died. You may have a person who has a condition that could evoke a reaction on their part that would be detrimental to their health. I'm not going to say that that's what happened here. I'm not a medical expert. I don't know. And that's when it took us about a half hour to try to this wrangle everybody up and get the hell the out of there. The closer the density of the crowd, the more problematic the use of these tools is in terms of a number of things. There have been panic reactions on compacted crowds resulted in trampling deaths and injuries uh, that occur. It's designed to get people to disperse, but in doing it with a compacted crowd, there isn't really that much maneuverability to disperse. And so it is a consideration that the commander uh, should review before using this type of grenade. And if he determines that that is a danger because of the compacted nature of the crowd, a burning uh, dispersion grenade would be a better tool because the gas is coming. It's not an explosion that causes the micro-pulverized uh, particles to be embedded in people. One of them may have been struck by a projectile. Uh, a witness did report that. 
was struck in the side of the head, but they were in very close proximity. So they would have certainly felt the concussion. They may have even felt the heat uh, and certainly any of the gas that came off of it. And the response was very quick. I mean, within a few seconds, the first fellow was down and he was without a pulse and they never did bring him back. The autopsy uh, ruled it as a natural death because the, these fellows had history of, of heart disease, but it did not go into contributing factors. And you know the families were not surprised about the heart attack because of the health conditions, but you cannot ignore the timing. Again, it raises troubling questions that, that really haven't been answered. So the police are pushing people over this barricade. And they were moving people back, but they were on a somewhat of an elevated platform and were pushing them pretty violently and there was a concrete barrier and they, several of these guys got flipped over. They were pushed so hard and they tumbled. It wasn't a large height, but I wouldn't be surprised if there were injuries. It kind of shocks the census to see it because this wasn't uh, just calmly shoving people back with riot shields or whatever. These, these were, uh, well, kind of looked like a bar fight. It's very disorganized, as you can see, that they're, they're throwing punches, they're striking people with batons, and even who, one going to do it. Did they grab a, someone? Who did they grab here? That's the, that's the fellow who was tased. And he so was, they, they tased this guy and dragged him and in? And then dragged him in, yep. What's depicted here is a police mob confronting a mob and fighting with them using techniques and tactics that they're not authorized to use, that they were not taught and trained to use. Uh, their policies and procedures of any agency that I'm aware of does not include. Such thing as doing a front snap kick to an individual that you've chased away from the area that was responded to later by the crowd doing the same tactic, a front snap kick to the officers. You've created a one-on-one -on -one contest. This is not a karate match. This is a situation where you're obligated and duty bound to disperse the crowd and to move them back or arrest those who stay there. That's not what was done. There was a severe beating of a woman named Victoria White. What do we know about her case? Well, Victoria White from uh, Rochester, Minnesota, uh, with the crowd had come up to the, the tunnel entrance and she says she had been pushed in by the momentum of the crowd and she ended up being trapped against one of the walls. And fairly short time after she got in there, she was attacked by a police officer, a supervisor from the Metro DC Police Department. And it went on for maybe five minutes. She was struck nearly 40 times in the head and face. When the first blow came to my head by a metal baton, it was really bad. And I remember trying to keep myself up um, because I was a scared, I would be trampled. Originally I thought I just got hit like three times on the head, but it wasn't until I saw the video that I realized like how bad it was getting in the tunnel. I remember trying to keep myself up because I was scared I was going to be trampled. And I remember saying to the officer, you took an oath to the Constitution, and he called me the B word, and that's when I got a, one of the hardest blows that I can remember. The head is a sphere, and what happens when you strike a spherical object with a blunted object, at least resistance, and glances off the head? That's a possibility. The second thing is you can hit them flush and kill them. 
If your intent was to kill them, you should have been using a firearm, not a baton. So it fails, tactically, to use a baton to attempt to use it as a disabling force option. The baton is registered as a less than lethal tool. It is a tool like tear gas. It is a tool like the taser. It is a tool like using your hands to subdue the person so that you can handcuff them and take them into custody. An officer striking her with an overhand blow approximately 10 times to her body, which she was protecting herself by putting her hands up to avoid the blows. Clearly a defensive position, not an attack position. She was also punched in the face with a closed fist by the same officer. I believe it was five times. She suffered a fairly severe beating, and the, the video is, is pretty graphic. They were taking her back through the tunnel to detain her. Um, so it was near the doors, the entrance to the Capitol. She is in the midst of a circle of police, and she's kind of getting jostled back and forth. I know at some point my shoes started to come off, and I was falling backwards and my coat around my waist slipped down and then I, I don't know. And then I know at one point I felt like I was falling backwards, then being pushed between officers, like ping-ponged. They had my hands behind my back. I didn't have my shoes. I just had my socks when they took me in. There is no words to express the way that I feel right now and um, the atrocities that are, have gone on. The fact that we're labeled as terrorists, we're labeled as racist. I am a mom of four mixed daughters. I love all people. People's lies about us are causing myself and other January Sixers to endure unspeakable hell. And justice for us it, it, it seems almost impossible. Phrases that would populate news sites all day and for months to come were repeated in near uniform. Storm the Capitol, breach police lines, insurrectionists, treason. Homogenous coverage came in real-time dispatches from the Capitol, but at the same time, Rally-goers had trouble making calls or sending texts to the grounds all day. January 6th was a display of grievance on behalf of a large swath of American society. That such an aggressive slice of the political world pushed these terms relentlessly raises the first somewhat rhetorical question of why. Julie Kelly, political commentator and senior contributor to American Greatness, has been one of the leading journalists on this topic. It's all by design. And the idea that there are still people who believe, especially people on the right, who somehow still believe that the events of January 6th were organic, it was this uprising incited by Donald Trump's speech that day at the Ellipse, they're burying their head in the sand. So it's almost like a child. If no one is punished, no one pays any consequences for the biggest fraud perpetrated on the American people until January 6th, the Russia collusion hoax, because they all got away with it, they were emboldened. 
And so that is what propelled them to then hijack the 2020 presidential election and then figure out a way after that how to bury and criminalize criticism of the 2020 election to finish off Donald Trump and the entire MAGA movement, which was the purpose of this inside job of January 6th. Fire. And so unfortunately, here we are. No one still has been held criminally responsible for Russiagate. And now we see the same interests dovetailing who coalesced behind the events of January 6th. What I think they're trying to do is take those two groups um, and tie them to Donald Trump. The Oath Keepers who provided security for Roger Stone on January 5th, that'll kind of be, in my view, the way to get to Trump through the Oath Keepers. The Proud Boys, obviously, when Trump was led into saying, stand back and stand by Proud Boys in that uh, 2020 debate, they're gonna describe that as the rallying call to get the Proud Boys to attack the Capitol, overthrow democracy. So I think that's where uh, they're headed, but that's right. This has always been about Trump, right? Well, it definitely is. It has nothing to do with January 6th, and this is why I think a lot of Americans are tuning it out, because they have not asked the hard questions. Why was the Capitol intentionally unsecure that day? Why did Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell's sergeant-at-arms, the people who are responsible for securing the Capitol, not Donald Trump, the Capitol Police Board, which uh, included those two men, Paul Irving and Michael Stanger, why did they repeatedly reject pleas from Steven Sund, the ex-Capitol Police Chief, for extra help that day? Even as the chaos unfolded on January 6th, they still denied um, deploying the National Guardsmen, which of course Trump had already offered. In December, I think I said it was a setup. Um, I think now I describe it as an inside job um, because it's the same interests who brought us Russiagate and everything since then, who conspired behind the scenes to execute the events of January 6th and now to uh, reap all of the political benefits that we've seen ever since. 18 months of nonstop fixation, um, the criminalization of political dissent, and an attempt to finally drive a stake in the heart of the MAGA movement. This stuff does not happen by accident in Washington, D.C. So that's basically how I describe uh, January 6th to, uh, to anyone who wants to know exactly what the truth is, and that is uh, the truth that I believe. If the media Fire. and if the FBI and the DOJ, in my documents, like the indictment or um, whatever my charges are, whatever, they make me out to be the aggressor. It's cr clearly not me, but the officers in that tunnel that were the aggressor and if they can say take a picture for instance a, a screenshot a video and say that oh look she's trying to grab onto the shield I was trying to hold myself up and if they can say oh look she's hitting the officer or trying to pull him down or whatever they said and yet I'm telling him to stop spraying me in my face it, it just stopped but they want to turn all that like I'm out to get them like I'm out to to beat the police in all that beating all of that I I did not punch an officer I didn't fight back against the police who who abused me and if they can lie about me I know for a fact that they can lie about everybody else that was there that day.
Before the smoke of tear gas had cleared at the capital, the decision was made at the highest levels of government to hunt down everyone who was at the Capitol on January 6. The FBI and the Department of Justice began rounding up suspects the very next day in the most far-flung investigation of its kind. Many suspects experienced the full SWAT treatment as federal tactical teams in armored vehicles prowled through suburban neighborhoods Front doors were blown off and flashbangs tossed inside. Family members were greeted with the laser sights of M4 carbines trained on their bodies. Even children were handcuffed as agents sorted out who was who. Some 850 people have been arrested for primarily misdemeanor charges, such as entering and remaining in a restricted building, and even parading, demonstrating, or picketing in a Capitol building. Some defendants were denied bail and still sit behind bars. To be charged even with trespassing meant being shunned by the community as traitors or insurrectionists. Some were fired for their jobs based only on allegations. For one of the defendants, Matthew Perna, the pressure was too much. He pled guilty to a felony charge of obstructing Congress and also misdemeanor charges. For these, he was facing over 20 years in prison, and he decided to end his own life. Rest his aunt, peace. Jerry Perna, said the charges that led to his death were unjustified. The way they're going after people is absolutely insane. And then on the other hand, on the other side of the coin, you have people committing crimes, blatantly robbing and looting stores in California and places, and they're not even being arrested. You can steal up to $900 and not even be arrested, but you can't walk into the Capitol, the people's house, with police saying, come on in. Nothing about this is normal. I don't put anything past them at this point. I don't. Um, they're out for blood, and they're getting it. They appear to be winning. I believe with Matt and with many other of the J6ers, I believe that this DOJ jumped the gun on these felony charges with many of them. And I believe they just randomly passed these charges out and then decided to look for the evidence. And in Matt's case and so many others, they simply didn't have the evidence. But it was a roller coaster of emotion from that point on, constant. And he was watching the other cases and how they were pleading, comparing his case to their case. Every time he had a hearing, it was delayed. He would gear himself up mentally, prepare himself, and they would delay it. Sometimes they would tell him when it would be, sometimes it was indefinitely delayed. Or it was um, discovery. They don't have enough, you know, they're still going through the discovery process. And that was mentally exhausting for him. It contributed immensely to Matt's suicide. It did. Um, it was a head game that they were playing with him. They're playing it with the rest of the J6ers. They're playing head games, and, and, and it's working. Matt was a very kind-hearted person. He had a smile that would light up a room. He was very thoughtful. He loved talking to people. That was a gift of his. He could sit down with a stranger in a coffee shop and just start having a conversation with them. And he loved learning about their lives and where they were from and how they grew up, especially the elderly. 
with people. And by the end of the conversation, he had made a new friend. And Matt didn't just make friends casually. He kept these people in his life. He had thousands of friends. Matt wrote beautiful paragraphs on every postcard talking about life and how he was enjoying his surroundings. And he sent probably thousands in his lifetime. There's no getting past this and there's nothing anybody could say that's gonna make it any better. We miss him so much. And we will forever be heartbroken. Many of the defendants from January 6th are still awaiting trial, and many have been held in continuous solitary confinement, a form of incarceration deemed by the ACLU as a human rights abuse. Epic Times reporter and host of Facts Matter, Roman Balmakov, spoke with January 6th prisoner Jake Lang over the phone to learn about their conditions. I'm in solitary confinement over here. So in DC and in Alexandria, I've been in solitary confinement. Um, Right now I'm in administrative segregation, it's called, and uh, they won't let me go to general population because um, they want to torture me into uh, trying to take some kind of uh, decade-long plea deal. Uh, 108 months is the most recent plea deal I was offered, a uh, decade in prison for defending, saving lives and defending the Constitution. It's cruel and unusual punishment, and it's uh, specifically um, because they want to send a signal out to the rest of the Americans. If you ever dare to stand, um, for your constitution and for your civil liberties that we will call you domestic terrorists, we'll drag you away from your home and your family and your community, we will put you in deplorable conditions, um, torture you into ridiculous plea deals, and meanwhile drag your name through the mud throughout all mainstream media and call you white supremacist and all these domestic terrorists and violent insurrectionists and all this ridiculous nonsense. Um, they're using us to uh, punish uh, pre-punish us before trial and to send a signal out to the American people that um, any resistance uh, that you have to tyranny will be treated as uh, as I'm being treated right now and so um, that's why I believe that they're torturing us um, January 6ers. Were the FBI raids warranted? Is it justified that many defendants have been held in solitary confinement while awaiting trial? Are the long prison sentences mainly for non-violent crimes reasonable? This would depend on what actually took place and just how much of a threat the crowd actually was. Now on the Trump side, we do know there was some violence. How significant was the violence on the Trump side? Well, it certainly can't be denied. Some of the lo locales where there was some instigation, but uh, there was clearly enough trouble from Trump supporters uh, because it's caught on security video where th things were hurled at the police, pieces of furniture, a 16-foot aluminum ladder was they tried to use as a battering ram. Where does a 16-foot aluminum ladder come from on the Capitol grounds during a protest? Uh, never quite figured that one out. You saw mops and whisk brooms and uh, office desk drawers, uh, large plastic garbage cans and a, a stereo speaker, a fairly heavy one, hurled in at the police. We do know that normal, normal riots often have projectiles thrown. We've seen BLM and Antifa riots with firebombs, Molotov cocktails, you know, of course, bricks, other, other objects like that. Was there anything that severe at this protest? There were no incendiaries thrown. Uh, th they did uh, arrest a fellow who had brought 
Molotov cocktails up within a block of the Capitol, but then didn't do anything with them. So of all the Trump supporters, I mean, what was the worst thing that we saw of violence on behalf of the Trump side? There was a line of police uh, that were below a concrete barrier, and they were climbing over. The police were moving out and climbing over. And uh, a man at least wearing Trump gear, I believe was a Trump supporter, he took a running start and put his shoulder into the back of this police officer with full force. And the police officer went head over heels and landed. I think he was caught by his colleagues who were down below, but it, it was, I'm sure that could have caused an injury. And the video is quite shocking. So that was clearly just wanton violence. This was not a reaction to anything. It's very clear. You can see he stops, seems to be making a conscious decision. And then wasn't a sprint, but it was a pretty good gallop before he made contact. Now, aside from him, were actions like what this individual carried out, were they representative of the rest of the crowd? Was anything like that common? No, I don't believe so. I think your typical uh, rally goer that day, even the ones that went over to the Capitol, uh, were more curious than anything. Now, certainly enough of them got riled up when you're, you're having projectiles fired into your midst, but that particular incident, you did not see a large number of those things. Uh, and I believe they have, they have arrested all of the people. It's pretty, pretty easy to spot because uh, when those things are done uh, on video, so, uh, but I think overall it was a s small percentage of the people that were there, which is why you were hearing people saying, I was there and I didn't, I didn't see any of this stuff. Of course, violence on January 6th was not limited to just fighting and riot control. In the aftermath of January 6th, four police officers who were present that day committed suicide. Yet there were also people who died that day. After the incidents on January 6th, one of the first stories that a lot of the media were reporting was this officer, Sicknick, they reported had been beaten to death by protesters using, I believe, a fire extinguisher. What was the real story with Officer Sicknick? Well, the real story is his death was ruled by the medical examiner as uh, from natural causes, that he had a stroke. And um, there was no fire extinguisher thrown at his head. But we continue to hear this used even in prosecutions and our own president uh, over this you know, recent weekend at a commencement said the rioters killed two police on January 6th. They're saying two police now. Who's, who's the other police officer? We'd have to ask him. It, uh, but these things just keep being repeated. We've even seen this brought up in court hearings. And a couple of times we've had defense attorneys speak up and say, whoa, wait a minute, that's not true. Uh, four people died January 6th. They were all Trump supporters. Officer Sicknick died the next day. And his case um, was not a result of being struck with any object. So just to review then, five deaths total from January 6th. Officer Sicknick appeared to die afterwards from health complications. We know Ashley Babbitt was shot and killed. Roseanne Boyland appeared to have died during the incident, although it was ruled as amphetamines. And then two individuals who had heart attacks or strokes. Uh, it appears that it was triggered very likely by munitions that officers had used against them. It certainly could have been. I mean, they were close enough that that, that would be a concern. The worst thing that happened that day 
was the execution of Ashley Babbitt at near point blank range by Lieutenant Michael Byrd, who was exonerated in any alleged investigation, and the deaths of three other Trump supporters, Benjamin Phillips, Kevin Greeson, and Roseanne Boylan, who died, all three of them, very likely due to excessive police force that day. That's another thing the January 6th committee and the DOJ are completely burying, so to speak. U.S. Capitol Police Lieutenant Michael Byrd who was off to Ashley's left when she climbed into the window. And he was fairly tight into the wall. Would have been difficult to see that he was there. And he has spoken publicly that he warned her, you know, he yelled at her to stop. You cannot hear that on any of the audio. It would be arguably very difficult because the, the crowd noise coming from that hallway, it was a din, it was very loud. But he had his gun trained on her as soon as he appears in the frame in the video, you know, it's not just is drawn and he's in shooting stance. And then he advances forward and lunges and then he fires at her and strikes her in the in the left shoulder. In the speaker's lobby, which is a fairly large space with marble columns, behind one of the columns that was probably 15, 20 feet uh, from where Lieutenant Byrd was, there was another officer who at almost the same instant as Lieutenant Byrd drew his weapon into firing position. So he had trained on Ashley Babbitt coming through the window. Uh, it did not fire as far as we know. You know it, the video was shot through cracked glass, so it's very difficult to, to get complete details, but it's very clear he raises his weapon into firing position, and then Lieutenant Byrd fires quite shortly after that. And as far as we know, then he, he drew down and did not did not fire, but there was a second officer by the stance he took, prepared to fire on her. It's hard to approximate the distance, but it would appear to be some eight to 10 feet away from where she was coming through the window, at which time uh, Lieutenant Byrd produced his Glock firearm and fired once without a safe backdrop because there were officers behind her and other innocent persons behind her, striking her whereupon she fell to the floor, mortally wounded. Lieutenant did not go forward and handcuff Ashley Babbitt and administer first aid. Uh, he withdrew, he's out of the picture. There was an additional officer who withdrew his weapon, again pointing it in a direction that was not a safe backdrop, but did not fire. So there's a discrepancy between the need of the lieutenant to fire when another officer didn't fire with the same circumstances. In order for lethal force to be authorized, the officer must be able to articulate that he or she was in fear of losing his life, was about to be killed or grievously injured. There is nothing I saw in that film that would indicate that that was possible or probable. Yeah, good point, Tech 264. I'm sure there's plenty of video surveillance from inside the Capitol showing what really happened. Uh, from what unfolded. Uh, lastly, I am not aware of any firearms discharge report being written, and I'm not aware of any conclusion that stated uh, that he was exonerated based on uh, a thorough internal affairs investigation, including the Graham v. Connor litmus test. The first thing that would happen immediately upon uh, a discharge of firearms would be, as I said, this now is a crime scene. 
and the lieutenant should have closed on the person that he shot, handcuffed that individual to prevent recovery and necessitating weapon. Next thing, apply first aid, and immediately that area should have been taped off, sealed off. It becomes a crime scene and should await the response of a crime scene investigation unit who would photograph the positions, the measurements, the forensics involved with the discharge of the firearm. A subsequent uh, discharge of firearms report would be required to be written by uh, Lieutenant Byrd. He would be placed on administrative leave with pay. His badge and ID card and firearm would be taken uh, and an internal affairs investigation would begin. Investigation is concluded. That would go to the office of the chief of police who would make a disposition in the case uh, that he, he as, the, um, as the chief, would have to make. I was shocked that the Department of Justice issued a three-paragraph uh, response to this horrific event um, based on the fact that they included in their language uh, the Graham v. Connor uh, litmus test, which is objective reasonableness. Clearly, from in any way, this was not objectively reasonable. And to use that language in defense of Lieutenant Byrd shows a conscious disregard for the facts as to how they came to that conclusion. Lieutenant Byrd's refusal to be interviewed uh, after requesting his lawyer, which never occurred. Are you willing to give us a statement today? I would prefer to have a lawyer present other than the information that you just provided. That is perfectly understandable, and uh, I will not ask you to provide a statement today. I will ask you though that when you do secure counsel, uh, you have my business card and my contact information on them. If you have them reach out to me to uh, arrange for you to provide a statement when appropriate. Yes, sir. He has a duty and a responsibility to be libargered, the department to libarger him, to which requires that he answer their questions in an internal affairs investigation or face termination for refusing to answer. He has no right to withhold an answer. My conclusion was that based on what I saw and observed in the video clip, that Ashley Babbitt was murdered. She was shot and killed under color of authority by an officer who violated not only the law, but his oath and committed an arrestable offense. What happened to Ashley Babbitt um, would not be allowed to happen anywhere else in the country, let alone have the identity, the name of the police officer involved, have his name concealed from the public for months. Um, that just never happens. Another case of the media working with, the, um, with Congress to protect people uh, who, you know, are, uh, are guilty of a crime. Everyone's seen the video, I think, where Ashley Babbitt was shot, but what's not paid attention to is how she got through this window and exactly what happened. And there are these really suspicious individuals. What is suspicious about these individuals in this scene? Well, the number of them, to begin with, uh, Ashley Babbitt, when she made her way this is up important. to the window, you guys seen this? she was surrounded by people who fit that definition. In her immediate vicinity surrounding her, there were probably three or four. Three or four suspicious actors and 20 suspicious actors total yes. in that room, in that area. And one of them, who was an instigator, Zachary Alam, he was the one bashing the window with, with a black helmet, and he knocked out several window panes. 
and Ashley Babbitt kind of had a running spar with him. She was screaming at him to stop. She stepped forward and she punched him in the face. Ashley Babbitt tried to stop this individual then, you're saying? She did. She got after the police officers who were there. Why aren't you stopping this? You know, And, you know, she's been portrayed as a, as a rioter, as a seditionist. Uh, but it's very clear in the video and the audio that she was uh, very upset and trying to stop what was happening because they were bashing in the glass in the doors that lead to the uh, speaker's lobby and right onto the house floor. And then when she, I mean, her husband is totally convinced that when she does the, the punch to Zachary Alam, she had decided that she needed to escape from that hallway that it had gotten scary, the conditions. The SWAT team was coming up the stairs and she was afraid of crowded places. That, so she decided, I have to get out of here. When she climbed up in the window, there were two suspicious actors, one on either side of her. We don't have a clear enough video angle to see if either one of them pushed her up into the window or helped her into the window, uh, but they were in that position on either side of her. And then when she was shot and fell back, Again, these same several suspicious actors were right around her when she fell and was laying there. So it raises all sorts of questions. Did they, what role did they have? How did they all get there at the same time along with all these other people? Another suspicious point with all this is one of the individuals who breaks this glass is, is communicating with another one. We can watch them in the video. And then as the SWAT team is moving up the stairs, this individual goes back down the stairs and looks like he's changing his clothes. Zachary Alam did that. When he saw Ashley had been shot, he realized it. Uh, you can see on the video, he physically responds. He almost jumps back and the look of horror. He was genuinely terrified. It, it certainly, certainly seemed to be, even though he had created the conditions that led to that uh, by, by the violence with the helmet and the, the smashed glass. And he did, uh, he did go down the stairs and did not come back up. But there were a number of people on the stairs that we haven't been able to identify and also haven't been charged and who were familiar enough with the police to, to go up to them and say things or pat them on the back. Who they are, we, you know, we still haven't uh, figured out. But for that many unidentified people to be in a space where there was a fatality like that, uh, you know, it, it, it goes to our longer list of, of burning questions. News outlets have tried framing Ashley Babbitt as having not been a peaceful protester, and House Democrats have painted her killer as a hero. Yet video evidence tells a very different story of her and of her death. Who was Ashley Babbitt? We met with her husband, Aaron Babbitt, in San Diego to learn more. Ashley just loved life. She loved herself. Nobody loved Ashley more than her. I mean, she just woke up every day wanting to take on the world and, you know, never had a task that she didn't want to conquer and the harder it was the more she wanted to fight for it she loved her dogs i mean we had three dogs i've lost all three of them since january 6th it's been a rough 18 19 months what, what happened on january 6th i understand you were not there she went what, what was kind of the what'd you hear from her and why she wanted to go we were sitting on the beach in cabo it was christmas day she was looking at her phone and she said, President Trump's having a, um, a speech uh, January 6th. And I really think I want to go, um, you know, because it might be the last time I get to him talk, hear him talk, or at least, you know, for another four years. 
And I kind of shrugged it off, laughed it off, because, you know, we had already been on vacation. We shut our business down for two weeks between Christmas and New Year's. And, but when Ashley has her mindset on something, she's going to do it, and that's the relationship we had. You know, I was, we always wanted the other to do what made them happy. Yeah, so why did, why did you decide not to go as well? Uh, I mean, we have a business. I was not political at that point. The Aaron sitting in front of you on January 5th is completely the Aaron, different Aaron sitting in front of you now. Uh, I was just well over politics. That was more her thing. And obviously, I, you know, I voted and supported for President Trump, and I will again, but it just wasn't my thing. She was having the best day of her life, and you could see that. She put on a Facebook Live video of her walking down the, the inaugural path on the way to the Capitol, and she specifically says that I just got to see President Trump speak, and I can tell you as big of a fan she was and a supporter that she would never leave until he was fully out of sight. Now, did you receive any messages from her when she was in the Capitol building? Yeah, I mean, I got a couple texts, but it was just, you know, I'm, I'm inside the Capitol, and I was looking at like, yo, what? And I turned my TV on real quick. Everybody was inside the House chamber just going about their own business, and I remember taking a picture of my TV and going, they don't look very concerned. When the news that she was shot came out, what was your reaction? Uh, I watched it live. I was, I was watching it happen. Um, I had to, out here in California, we were still heavily locked down for COVID. I had to make a gym uh, reservation, and I had a short day that day, so I got home at like 11.30 our time, um, and I got a call somewhere just after 12 saying that uh, it, it was from a person that I really don't talk to. I mean, him and Ashley's wife were really good friends. We're, we're buddies when we're around each other, but that's about it. He said that his wife had um, thought that she had seen Ashley on TV and looked like she'd been hurt. There was something about a door or a window. I could hear the tremble in his voice, and I hung the phone up. I walked outside, you know, into the living room, and I turned my TV on. And the very first image I saw was Ashley laying on the ground with blood, you know, blood coming out. The lights went off. I collapsed. I came to. There was there were people in my house. Um, I knew them, but I don't remember them coming in. And at that point, I mean, my life really just changed forever. I mean, I had to, my phone started ringing, and I'm, you know, thinking, hey, I'm getting info now. And it's, hey, this is so-and-so from this TV station in San Diego. I, 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 you're not who I want to talk to. I'm trying to find out what happened in my life, you know, and I'm, I have to answer these phone calls. I was bound to the same use of force continuum that those police are in D.C. I worked at a security and nuclear power plant. I knew the steps. I could spit them out verbatim when I was working there. And I, so I knew that it was a bad shoot. And I knew immediately, like, hey, something really, really bad just happened from what I saw. But it was probably a span of like a month that I was just terrified. I didn't want to watch it again. What I had seen, it just was so traumatic. I didn't want to watch it happen again. But then I'd like run into random people that I knew, grown men, customers, and they'd just be sobbing on my shoulder. And I'm like, I don't think I've really seen it all in, in its entirety. Uh, so I had to make that jump into um, basically watching and looking at every picture that no husband should ever have to look at. But I had to because I had to hide in my skin. I had to thicken my skin over it. So I got to the point to where I just, I 
you know, rip the band-aid off every morning. I'll search Ashley's name on Twitter. I'll read all the bad stuff. I'll, you know, whoever wants to put a picture up. Rest in peace, Ashley. God bless them. It's too bad that they have that loss. And those of you that uh, don't believe that, I can't help you. Um, there was intermittent coverage in the area that day. I've already seen it, you know, so it's just, I do that and it got me to the point to where nobody can rock me. You know, nobody's going to say it to my face. They're not going to, you know, it's just, it's just how it is. Ashley Babbitt was the only person confirmed to have been killed on January 6th, but another death also has video evidence suggesting that DC Metropolitan Police may have played a role, that of Roseanne Boyland. Roseanne Boyland was part of a crowd that had gathered in the tunnel entrance on the Lower West Terrace as one of the entrances to the Capitol, and the police, in trying to drive the people out, unleashed some sort of chemical irritant that appeared to displace the oxygen. The witnesses described the feeling that the oxygen had been sucked out of the air and they couldn't breathe. Because people could not draw a breath in, they very quickly went unconscious. And Roseanne was one of the first to fall right at the tunnel entrance. She went down. A number of people who continued to push out landed on top of her. In almost an instant, she was under five or six people deep. There is a duty on the part of police once they push somebody out of the tunnel or attempting to push them out of the tunnel and they fall to render aid or to get them up and get them out of the tunnel. It's incumbent upon them to do that. The video is quite shocking. It looks like a waterfall going down the steps leading away from this entrance. People just tumbling out. And at that point, the police were, were pushing. They were pushing everyone out after deploying the gas. And so you had a, a pile of humanity and the people at the bottom, of course, were being crushed. And Roseanne was terrified. She was calling out, someone help me, someone help me. And another uh, bystander held her hand while she became unconscious. My assessment of the use of gas in a tunnel, a confined space is as follows. The objective of the use of gas is to disperse or to arrest those who fail to disperse. In a confined space like a tunnel, when you discharge gas, you suck up the oxygen. You cause a panic reaction, which is an increased breathing, which ingests an ingestion of gas, causes pain and problems that cause people to pass out. So Roseanne's trapped under these people. She collapsed when, the, again, the air had been sucked out of the room by some kind of chemical irritant. How did the police react to her? The crowd and many, many people in it were begging police to help. They were pointing down to Roseanne on the ground, saying, we have someone down. She needs help, please. One gentleman, uh, please save her, please, please. And the reaction was silence. There was no reaction. And if there was any, it was uh, one of the officers kicked a couple of fairly large gentlemen in the hindquarters and kicked them on top of her. So she had more people land on her after that. I saw individuals who were screaming for assistance to be given to her, that she was dying, please save a life, those kinds of comments. I saw one individual who was struck with a baton and bleeding, who was screaming for help to be rendered to her, and nothing was forthcoming from law enforcement. The crowd was desperate. It's not fun to watch somebody die, and they knew she was in mortal peril. And, and when their entreaties were ignored, it turned to anger. 
Now we have this video footage of Roseanne Boylan being beaten by police. At what stage did this take place? Well, she had been down possibly five minutes, uh, and there was a battle going on at the, the front of the police line because people were appeared to be trying to protect her. And one of the officers who was just new up to the front of the line, she had just come up, she attacked one of the protesters, or she struck him, I shouldn't, uh, in the arm and struck him again and missed. And then, inexplicably, she turned her physical assault on Roseanne Boylan, who was, had been unconscious for some time. In analyzing the film, I saw a police officer from D.C. Metro with a stick, that was a walking stick, strike a downed Roseanne Boylan three times. I was horrified, twice in the head and once in the chest. We don't train officers to hit people in the head with a blunt object. It's to be avoided. We teach other targets, arms, legs, things like that. Moreover, we don't teach officers are not trained to strike a downed person. My conclusion in reviewing the officer's behavior was that they were untrained, they were not properly equipped, they were not properly commanded and supervised, and that they did a reactive, fear-struck or anger-struck tactics where they punished people rather than arresting or dispersing them. It is definitely a crime that was committed by Officer Morris when she struck a downed person. What she should have done is again handcuffed the individual and rendered first aid. Yes, it's assault under color of authority with intent to do great bodily harm. She was seriously attempting to injure Roseanne Boylan by striking her when she was in a down position and unconscious. The officer tried to continue, but she was uh, swinging so hard the stick flew out of her hand, so she had lost her weapon, and then a colleague of hers behind her pulled her back into the Capitol itself. And the entreaties for Roseanne continued. A gentleman stepped up, was holding a medical crutch, an aluminum crutch, to basically block police. He started out his role in this by asking people to pray. And you can see this on video. He turns around and is shouting at people to stop and pray because he thought people were dying. And indeed, that's what turned out to be the case. In a short while after that, he is at the front line. This crutch just flies in from off camera, lands at his feet. So he ended up picking that up. He said, I'd try to make myself as big as possible to be a barrier between the police and the crowd. And as he did this, some of the bystanders pulled Roseanne down the steps and started CPR. I mean, he's charged with, uh, with multiple uh, counts, but in the media and even in his own fam extended family, uh, he got pretty widespread condemnation. You know, he was labeled as, as a, an insurrectionist uh, in that he was assaulting the police. You can look at that video and you can draw other conclusions, but his input was key. He was widely condemned. Short time after, Luke Coffey held the crutch up and the bystanders tried doing CPR. They picked her up and set her down right in front of the police. You watch the video and it almost seemed to be like here is a person in need of help, helper. And uh, eventually an officer did step forward and wrapped her by the foot, but they, they dragged her out. And it reminded me of deer hunting, you drag out a, a deer carcass. And you know, her arms went up over her head. She lost a good bit of her clothing in this process. 
uh, but they pulled her into the Capitol. Then she did receive emergency care, and I think heroic care. The officers that were inside didn't hesitate. Unfortunately, we're pretty sure she was deceased by that time, but that did give that family great comfort to see that not all the officers were indifferent to what was going on with her. Imagine if the American people actually saw just what happened to Roseanne Boylan and these officers who keep portraying themselves as heroes that day when they were the villains, and I've said this over and over, the people who acted most violently on January 6th were Capitol and D.C. Metro Police. People don't want to hear that. I think that's why you have so many men who were at the mouth of that tunnel trying to protect her and others who were on the ground, others who are being beaten by police officers. That's why you have so many of those men under pretrial detention orders trying to torture them into plea deals because they don't want trials and they don't want the evidence of what happened in that tunnel to come out at trial. And so I think that's why you've got at least six or seven men who were there who were also, who were pitting police officers. I mean, I'm not, that is a fact. But when you see law enforcement, when you see thugs disguised as police officers, you're not, you can defend yourself and others around you. And the fact that even the video that most of the public and certainly the media has seen, that they have not questioned why those police officers did not stop what they were doing, clear an area, and attempt to resuscitate her, help her, or get her out of that crowd, um, that they dragged her back through the tunnel, uh, and I've heard descriptions of what she looked like being dragged through that tunnel. Again, that's why they don't want the surveillance video released, right? I mean, you have thousands of hours of it. The DC medical examiner ruled it was accidental and ascribed it to amphetamine intoxication. She had a prescription for Adderall for ADHD, which she had been on for probably 10 years. It was a drug she was certainly used to, and there was no indication she had any distress up until the point she fell, but that was his finding. And the, the family, the Boylan family, immediately uh, felt they needed to challenge that. And they did hire their own pathologist to review the autopsy. And that person came to, came to a different conclusion and said that uh, amphetamine intoxication was clearly not the reason for her death. And seemed to acknowledge that the circumstances she was in with the crowd and being crushed and this violence going on around her and uh, and pepper gel just dripping from on high, uh, and she's probably inhaling some of this stuff, that those could have been very easily aggravating factors. Video footage of protesters fighting with police at the doors of the Capitol building have been among the more common scenes used by media outlets, trying to paint the protesters as violent. Yet the full context of that scene is often left out. When the video evidence is shown in its full context, it's clear the crowd is trying to rescue Roseanne Boylan as police beat her unconscious body. To get the deeper context of the crowd and what took place, we met with Luke Coffey, the man who pushed the police back using a crutch, which then allowed other protesters to pull Roseanne from the tunnel. I was walking back to the hotel and I was approached by three different men, kind of younger guys that were running away from the Capitol and were basically telling uh, people that we need patriots at the Capitol. There are people dying inside. We need patriots. But it was, I thought it was strange because they were running away from the Capitol and we were still at least a mile probably away. I was prodded at that point by the Lord really to 
to, I wanted to go up there to the front and try to stop the chaos and confusion and, and whatever was going on. I didn't know, I didn't know anything at this point. So initially when they approached me, it was, it was, uh, I, I felt it would just, it stood out as a very strange occurrence that they were, um, trying to get people to go up there and why were they running away from it? It was, it was bizarre really. And I had a, a friend that is, uh, I would consider a conspiracy theorist by nature. And he warned me that there could be a false flag incident that day, be very careful. And it, that's immediately what I thought that these gentlemen were trying to escalate pro provocateurs that were working to get people up there. I heard the Holy Spirit speak to me and say, go up and to the front and pray. And it was very clear voice. I think there are three voices in our head, our own, the Holy Spirit, if you know Jesus, and demonic spirits that can influence you. I know it was not my own voice, and it was the Lord that very much told me, and I felt it was a prodding in my heart to go up there, regardless of the risk, and just pray, and, and pray for peace. As I was walking up there, it did, I felt like there were saints you know, that were making eye contact, going out of their way to make eye contact with me. And this is a crowd of 20 to 30,000 people, but it was certain people that were just still and peaceful and just making, they'd give me a little nod or just make eye contact with me. And, you know, the eyes are the window of the soul. And it was something incredible that really has stood out um, to me. And I haven't told a lot of people. It was an overcast day for the most part, but the clouds opened up and I did see these strips of paper coming down. They were verses that were encouraged me to continue on. And I don't think other people saw them. And I know I wasn't hallucinating, um, but it was prodding me to continue on. And, uh, and again, people can think I'm nuts, but until you experience these things, uh, you, you may be a doubter. So when I saw the, the verses coming down, it only, solidified what God had told me to go up there. They were at one point, several points, at several points they were, the crowd was out there singing Amazing Grace. It was a picturesque experience that was, I felt like God gave me a glimpse of uh, heaven in this chaos and confusion that was going around was this beautiful, peaceful thing happening, which, uh, which I, I know was a gift and and uh, it was truly incredible. And, and that's what led me to, to go up to the uh, West Side Terrace. When I went up there, they started deploying the tear gas. People started falling backwards on top of each other and were trying to get away because they couldn't breathe from the tear gas. I saw multiple women that I tried to help that were on the bottom of three to four people piled deep. And I was, with no success, was able to pull them out. So at that point, I went to the crowd and was saying, we got to stop this. We got to pray. Roseanne was one of the people I saw up at the top of the steps that I was trying to help out, along with several other women that were underneath. And people were screaming out that they couldn't breathe. And it was very traumatic. 
the gas made everybody freak out and, and caused more chaos. And uh, so everyone had fallen on top of each other. And so I went up to the front telling them, everyone stop and pray, because I really believe people were gonna die. I thought people were gonna perish underneath that, that crowd because it was just jam-packed. People crying out maybe for their last breaths at that point is where I did hear voice of the Lord say, Luke, go stand in the gap. And, uh, and at the same, around the same time, these three other guys were talking about that we need to do something so this doesn't happen again. So this, so to deescalate it, to, to prevent it from happening again. The couple of these guys were like, I, I don't want to risk going up there. And you know, one said, I got my family to think of. And I said, I'm single, I'll go up there. And, and uh, so I tried to walk as peacefully and slowly as I could. Um, and go right up to the line of, of police. And I didn't know how many there were. I did see that they were swinging and it was violent and there were people on both sides swinging. And so I said, stop immediately. Stop guys, we're all Americans, stop. I was immediately sprayed with pepper spray directly to my face and was being hit as well. So I couldn't see well, obviously, but I looked down and happened to see a crutch that I guess had just flown up there and landed at my feet and so I was prompted to pick it up and put it over my head. The most peaceful thing I could do is make myself big and try to make a wall between both parties. I don't know if it's audible in the recordings, but I said, in, in the name of Jesus, Lord, please stop this. And then I turned around and said it to the crowd, stop, everyone stop. And then I was hit in the back, which prompted me to turn around and put the crutch in a defensive manner uh, in front of me. It was a fighter, I can say it was a fight or flight response to being a, uh, attacked and, and you know, the crutch was never meant to be used in, in any other way than to defend myself or peace, to peacefully make a stand and then to defend myself. There was a reason and it wasn't a coincidence. And I, do, I, I don't believe in coincidences. I believe they're, they're fingerprints on our lives, evidence of God's greater plan. And so I wasn't, that surprised that that's where Roseanne was. Um, and I, I just wish more could have been done to save her life. One of the biggest crossroad moments of my life was first experiencing getting hit by a car with the love of my life over my shoulder and uh, her perishing that evening. What I learned from that experience is that God is the author of our lives. He is the great um, director. He is uh, he is in control, he's sovereign, he's providential. And God used what was the, my worst nightmare to, show, to really show up in, in, in my life. And so it was the, that was the, hard, it's, it's weird to say, but it was the greatest moment and the worst moment in my life when I lost her. So when, for, to have another woman in my proximity um, is very, I don't know what, what to say about it. The FBI reached out and I immediately called him back and told him the story just like I've told you. Told him that I did have contact with the police and but I was pretty much trying to break it up and, and even he said, Mr. Coffey, it looks like you were trying to de-escalate things. He said, you're not a suspect at this point. And for about 14 or 15 days, I was told I was not a suspect. Initially he said, 
if, if they charge you anything, it will be a misdemeanor, disorderly conduct. But he said they may not charge you at all. You know, it says you were, it looks, it looks like you were trying to de-escalate things. Or, <clears throat> so, you know, 10 or 12 days later, he said, Mr. Coffey's not looking good for you. And I said, what do you mean? And he goes, well, we've seen some new evidence and uh, we're gonna need you to uh, come in and talk to us. And I said, well, let me let my lawyer talk to you. Didn't have a lawyer at the time, but I quickly got one and uh, hired one and, and uh, who negotiated what became me turning myself in to the FBI in Dallas. I spent 45 days in a prison down here in Texas, Limestone County. I've had two plea deals come in, one of which was four to five years, pleading guilty to a felony assault with a deadly weapon, the crutch being the deadly weapon. When I met with my lawyers most recently, I was able to go to Midland, Texas, where they are for several days, and they had a potential plea deal that was similar to another defendant that was eight to 14 months, but still pleading guilty to a felony assault with a deadly weapon. I just know I feel called to fight for truth, not for just myself, but for other J6ers. The only thing they can do is kill me or put me back in prison, and I'm not scared either way. So I'm ready to do whatever God calls me, and whatever he wills it for my life. It's my absolute full intention to go to trial. One of the defense attorneys for the Oath Keepers filed a motion that identified 80, what he calls suspicious actors and material witnesses. These are people who have uh, not been arrested or charged or even identified. They're only identified by somewhat whimsical hashtags that the Sedition Hunters website assigned to them. And they were present in concentration in certain places where there was trouble, including at the, on the east side at the Columbus Doors. So he went through and, uh, and he gave them numbers. And you'd see when the police line was breached, the breach point included, it was almost exclusively the suspicious actors. Attorney Brad Geyer, when he filed this motion and he watched this over months, the video, that a lot of these fellows worked in two-man teams, tactical teams. And then they were also seen later up on the terrace when they were trying to get into the Columbus doors. He raised a big question, which would be exculpatory for a lot of defendants, that if there was anything that was staged, that calls a lot of things into question. And so he's trying to identify those people. He wants to use facial recognition using the government's own databases because these folks are not listed anywhere. And there's been no explanation. Uh, prosecutors have adopted a policy of just no, no comment outside of court filings. So uh, we have asked, you know, can you explain this? And there has been no response. Obviously, there will be in, in responding to the motions at some point. Um, so we, we don't know uh, and how those folks got there. But it compared to people who were charged, and some of them very quickly, some on January 7th uh, of 2021, um, to have people unidentified, and that larger group that don't even have a name, much less be arrested or charged, that strikes me as very unusual. They were in various places. At the first breach point, in a smaller number, on the uh, 
the East Steps leading up to the Rotunda, a much larger group, and then there were others that were at the location where Ashley Babbitt was shot. Pretty substantial, more than 20 that we've identified. For the most part, people that have not been arrested or even identified. Some of them are listed on the FBI's most wanted site, uh, but we still don't know who they are. One of the most suspicious individuals, one who's shown up a lot of headlines, is Ray Epps. What happened with Ray Epps? We see him a lot on video from January 5th and 6th. On the night before, he was amidst the Trump supporters and appears to be encouraging people to not just go to the Capitol the next day, but to go into the Capitol. Tomorrow, we need to go into the Capitol. Into the Capitol. And got in some verbal sparring with some Trump supporters who were chanting, Fed, Fed, Fed. Had him pegged as an agent because I think they knew it was an illegal thing to do, potentially. He went around that crowd encouraging people to go into the Capitol. Because of the stakes here, we've got to go into the Capitol. Uh, there were plenty of people charged that day for encouraging others to go inside the Capitol. And Ray was never arrested or charged with anything. Wait, so they're going after people for entering the Capitol building, but one of the individuals who demonstrated, you know, premeditated entry to the Capitol and was encouraging others was never actually charged? That obviously raised a lot of questions, and I know uh, he denied being any kind of an informant, uh, working for the government, um, but yet we see him quite a few times after that, uh, and this was well before the president had finished speaking at the first breach point, you know, he is seen interacting with some of the people that pushed over the barriers. And one of the men charged with the first breach, he was talking in his ear, hard to say what he was saying. He, he claims that he was telling the young man to back off. But what the fellow actually did is he turned around and dumped over the, the barrier and the group was off to the races. He was seen again at the next breach point and again, just backed off of the front line. Uh, so he, he clearly had a presence in the prosecutors have promised to explain and give more information about him. Uh, back in March, they, they said they would do that. That hasn't happened yet, so you know, it just it leaves a lot of questions and speculation uh, of what a lot of the defense attorneys are calling suspicious actors. Who is this individual we're looking at in this piece of footage? Well, a radio journalist from Michigan was shooting video that day at the Capitol. What he captured were two most charitably called suspicious actors, but they are dressed in such a way that led him to believe that they were government agents. And one of them, after the windows had been broken by a protester, it was encouraging people to, to pull the rest of the glass out and go inside. Bobby Powell, who was the journalist that had shot it, and he has his camera rolling, he told him that would be illegal and that wouldn't be a good idea. He warned people off not to go into that window and then he turned his camera around and he caught this agent or suspicious actor pulling a large pane of glass out, this tempered glass. It kind of folds in, into itself, crunch onto the ground. When he realized he was being filmed, he quickly dropped it. It seems apparent on the video that he did not want to be seen doing what he, what he just did. So he pulled in a protester and started blaming him. He said, what are you doing breaking that window? The poor fellow that was being accused didn't know what was going on. And then he gave him a couple of really good shoves and cocked his arm like he was gonna punch him. We don't know, his uh, facial image is not on any of the Sedition Hunter sites or the FBI's most wanted site, but he clearly was 
committing criminal damage to property, uh, and he has not been charged. So it, you know, again, it, it raises a question of why. Have we not been able to, to discover his identity because his face was covered and he was wearing dark glasses. Who's the other individual captured in this footage? At the nearby Columbus doors, these giant bronze ornamental doors, we had the second suspicious actor who was holding the door open, the inside door, with a wooden pole. He just stood there and had, you know, it was like a fairly thick wooden dowel holding it open for a pretty good chunk of time. And he was also pushing people into the entryway. In fact, the journalist who shot this said he got a very strong shove that this guy was, hold the line, hold the line, and was pushing people in. He probably would have been there longer, except he, he got a, a dose of tear gas in his face and was put out of commission. And then we don't see him again on that video. But making it easier for people to get into the Capitol and encouraging them with a good shove again raises questions about who is this fellow. In addition to this, so the guys trying to push people through, these are captured at the same time by the same journalist. Also the individual trying to, again, opening the window up is even encouraging people to enter, I believe, as well? Yes. What's he saying? Well, he, he said, why don't y'all uh, open the rest of it up? He just came out of the blue. He was off to the side or behind the journalist who was busy picking up the broken glass. I'm pretty sure that's why he wheeled his camera around, is to catch it, because while he was telling him this, uh, while the, uh, the, the suspicious actor was encouraging him, he was busy pulling the glass out. You could hear it crinkling while he's saying these things. So. Um, you know, and again, it was just encouraging people to do what we're told they're not supposed to do is trespass in the Capitol. I remember hearing um, from previous rallies and other news that Antifa, previous rallies even, uh, would infiltrate and say one day they're going to do something and they'll be dressed as Trump supporters and do something to make us look bad. We told you. We ended up at the, was gonna the mouth happen. of the tunnel. Uh, there was a window nearby that was being attacked with hammers. I think there was even a crowbar that was used. And one of the times that, that an individual stepped up and was trying to smack at this window. Everyone's yelling Antifa, but no one's stopping him. So um, I just didn't give it a second thought, and I ran toward the man who was breaking out the window. And right before I make it to him, somebody else jumps up and takes him down from breaking the window. But as he does that, there's a group of probably two, at least, men that pull him off of the man that was breaking the window. As soon as I make it there, I grab the guy that was smashing the window, and I pull him down. And next thing you know, people were standing back up after we scuffled. And I'm like, we don't do that. Trump supporters, we don't do that. Then there's other people, no, we're all on the same team. I'm like, no, no, we're not. Who brings something like that to a Trump rally, let alone to break out the Capitol window? That That's not us. The second man, um, I go to reach for him to pull him down and grab his backpack. And as I do that, two or more men grab me and they go to pull me off of him. And I come around and I reach with my other hand and I 
push this man's head. And then there's this big like argument that ensues. And a man from like nowhere jumps up there with a bullhorn thing, like, get her out of here, get her out of here. And there's, I felt instantly like, they're gonna kill me or do something to me. And I, and I later, um, I'm just like scared. Some of the biggest names we've heard when it comes to, you know, the violent groups involved in January 6th was the Oath Keepers. Uh, this is, of course, you know, one of the militias in the United States and one that's very well known. And they're really one of the highlights of the case against the Trump supporters on that day. What do we know about their case? They are just really the centerpiece of the prosecution on January 6th, um, accused of going there to prevent the counting of the electoral votes by force and violence if necessary, according to prosecutors. Uh, but we had an incident on the east side of the Capitol that in a very dramatic way counters that narrative and that belief where they are assisting the police. There was a amateur videographer from Florida who captured an officer of the U.S. Capitol Police came out of the building, out of the Columbus doors where a crowd was trying to get inside. He was wearing a red Trump MAGA hat and he came down to the Oath Keepers and sought them out and said he needed help. This is all captured on video, this discussion, when he makes it clear he needs help getting officers out of the Capitol who are fearful for their safety. You can see the Oath Keepers' faces, just let's go, let's go. And so they take him and they go back up those stairs in a military stack formation and they go up to the Capitol uh, Columbus doors and they have to explain who they are but eventually they are let in in a short while, they come out with 16 police officers clad in riot gear, and they take them down the steps to join a police line outside. So they went in and got them and brought them out, and they formed a space in the crowd to take them down the stairs. It's somewhat remarkable because the crowd, one woman was hugging every one of them that came out of the building. Others are thanking them. There wasn't any attacking done on that. but. The Oath Keepers are very quick to point out that's part of their mission. So many of them are actually law enforcement officers, or they served in the military, or they're retired, uh, and that, you know, they were there that day doing security for various events. So it, to them it's no surprise, but it, it, it paints a very different picture of the group, uh, and these same individuals uh, are charged with a seditious conspiracy. Have we seen any evidence suggesting that the claims of seditious conspiracy were accurate? The evidence that's been put forth by the prosecutors certainly shows that these fellows communicated with each other leading up to the day and, and on the day. Uh, phone calls, texts, things like that. The rub comes in how do you interpret that? What was in the minds of the Oath Keepers? And that's gonna, in seditious conspiracy, that's what it's going to come down to. Were they of the mindset to go there to breach the Capitol and stop the electoral votes from being counted? They will quickly say, no, we were not. Uh, we were there to do security. And they did bring a pretty good size uh, cache of arms with them that were stored in Virginia. But they were of the belief that President Trump might enact the Insurrection Act and call up militia to counter Antifa if there was Antifa violence. And so they were prepared for that eventuality. But, but they did not bring that with them to the Capitol grounds that day? No, they did not bring weapons. There were a couple of groups that went in, but both of those groups ended up assisting Capitol Police. This, uh, this incident on the stairs was just one of, uh, one of three times 
that day where Oath Keepers helped the police. The second major incident, uh, there was a Capitol Police officer who was guarding stairs that were going down to the lower level. And he got into a screaming match with the bystanders, protesters, uh, and it got very personal and very heated. The Oath Keepers came onto this scene just outside the rotunda and got in between the combatants and de-escalated it, made sure the officer knew he is safe. They were gonna make sure that nobody could attack him. There were just a couple of gentlemen who were just over the top, separating them and calming them down. And then they escorted the officer to a police line where his brother officers were, removed him from that situation. Several of the Oath Keepers who were part of that had said they are convinced that was within a few seconds of a shooting. He had a, an M4 rifle. There is audio footage of some of the back and forth between them, but not with the weapon. I believe he disputes that and minimizes their role in helping, but you can see that they are in between at least trying to de-escalate. It's against the narrative that has developed against the Oath Keepers. So that's two incidents. What was the third incident where they helped the police? There was an incident where they were asked to guard a broken window to keep people from coming in. And I don't think there were a large number of, of Oath Keepers involved in that. As long as they were asked, they did guard that window. Uh, so those were three incidents that we know of uh, where they, they lended assistance. Hmm which does challenge the narrative, again, that they went there with some kind of seditious intent. Capitol Police rather passively allowing people into the Capitol building or lashing out at the crowd with sometimes extreme violence. Meanwhile, many of the suspicious actors who were key instigators of the crowd were never arrested. These facts raise serious questions over who made the calls on security that day. And more importantly, what was then-President Donald Trump's role? Cash Patel was the acting chief of staff at the Pentagon under Trump, and now hosts Cash's Corner with the Epic Times. On January 6, he was a go-between on communications with Trump and the request for security on January 6. He was called in the January 6 committee to testify on what took place. We met with Cash in Washington to find out who made the calls on security and what happened behind closed doors at the White House. One thing everybody's wondering about January 6th mm. is who was in charge of security that day? Well, that's a great question. And the simple answer is the protection of the Capitol and members of Congress falls to law enforcement. And that is specifically the Capitol Police, Metropolitan PD, which is the Washington uh, DC police force, and the federal agencies, the FBI and DHS when called upon. And all of that can be supplemented with National Guard security assistance if and when requested. The way it's structured at the Capitol is there's a sergeant at arms for the House and a sergeant at arms for the Senate. The Capitol Police, per their own timeline, received the authorization request from the Department of Defense, where I was chief of staff for National Guard's men and women, before January 6th. The Capitol Police then went to the sergeant at arms in the House and the Senate and the chief of police, and the decision was made, pursuant to their own timeline, that that request would be declined. The United States Supreme Court, Posse Comitatus, said, rightfully so, the United States military cannot be deployed domestically. Uh, that's what local law enforcement and federal law enforcement are for. But they said that this is the whole purpose behind the National Guard, who are not full-time uniformed military officials. They are doctors, lawyers, teachers, husbands, wives, parents, who live in the community and have other full-time jobs, but when called upon are activated to come into the National Guard. The Supreme Court said two things must happen. One, 
the President of the United States has to authorize, not order, authorize the use of the National Guard. Once that happens, step two has to happen as well before they can be deployed. And that is a request from the head of the state, the governor, in this case, Mayor Bowser, because it's Washington, D.C., or federal law enforcement needs to request the National Guard to be deployed. If those two things don't happen, then any issuance of the National Guard would be literally unconstitutional. Take you back to January 4th-ish, right? We're in the Oval Office with President Trump. It was me, the Secretary of Defense, Chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff, Chief of Staff of the President of the United States, and obviously President Trump, and maybe one or two other officials. And I remember it, it was a Monday morning. We were talking about an extremely sensitive operation we were running overseas. Um, and then once we finished that topic, President Trump pivoted and said, hey, what are you guys doing, you know, basically for security? And I'm paraphrasing here for anything that might happen on January 6th. And we said, well, we're doing what we always do. We're getting ready, sir. And he said, well, if you need up to 20,000 National Guardsmen and women, not just in Washington, D.C., but anywhere in the country, you have my authorization. So roger that, sir. Check. We've got the commander. I need a, I need a digger. When was the rumored firefight or whatever it was in Germany with regards to Dominion server systems that supposedly Haspel was involved in that whole thing. When was that rumored? Chief giving us that authorization that the law requires. So what do we do? Department of Defense takes that authorization and goes to Mayor Bowser, literally, and goes to the Capitol Police and says, the president has said this many thousands of National Guardsmen and women are at your disposal but you need to make the request because the law prohibits us from just deploying them. Mayor Bowser, in writing, pursuant to her own letter that we released from her, sent to the Department of Defense, declined to issue any more National Guards, men and women, in writing on January, you know, I'm guessing now it was 4th or the 5th. The United States Capitol Police timeline now shows definitively what we've been saying the whole time because we knew it was true, that the United States Capitol Police similarly declined. The only thing that we cared about was a chain of command and following the law at DOD. And we were informed by Mayor Bowser, who runs D.C., and by the Capitol Police, who are the federal law enforcement authority here, that no more troops would be necessary. Now, on that note, is it possible they had assessed that the Capitol Police would have been enough? Because they also didn't, they really didn't put down riot police initially either. No. So they seem to have assumed that the Capitol Police, in and of itself, was enough to handle that crowd. Would the Capitol Police normally be able to handle a crowd like that? Not of that size. It's just far too big. As we outlined earlier, uh, you know, what the Capitol Police's main functions are and, you know, what their abilities are. They're not the NYPD. There's not 40,000 uniformed cops um, sitting at the Capitol. That's just not the way it is. Well, the Capitol Police timeline shows that they were looking at things, and now the FBI's information has finally come out that the FBI had information about security concerns before January 6th. As for the rest, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and company were calling the Department of Defense, and rightfully so on that day, multiple times. And I remember vividly we were saying, well, once you tell us you want this, you know, we'll turn it on because we had prepped it so, so well. And we did. The, the answer to that freestyler is the rumored arrest of Gina Haspel was 11 2020. Interesting. So that's much after all of this, right? Or is that right on the same time frame? I'm trying to picture December 2020. So it was around the same time frame. That's interesting. I, I, <laughs> I'll just put I'll just put it in the classified as the interesting category. There's no way to really know, right? Whatever if whatever happened, if there really was a, a shootout with the CIA that was holding the server systems and all that stuff. There's really no way of knowing any of that stuff. It's all rumored stuff, but it is interesting timing. Did exactly that, and then their complaint was, "Why aren't they here 
you know, within the hour? How do you move people across America within the hour? We told you two days ago, we could have been stationed here and ready to go and hit the easy button, but you said no. And then the law would not allow us to act. Guys, we got seven minutes left in this. We're definitely gonna watch the rest of it. And I have about a half hour show planned. So I'm hoping you guys will hang out for the, for the next half hour. Um, if you can't, let me know. And I will go ahead and drop the gold pills now on the Foxhole if you can. I got some good stuff that we need to cover with regards to this topic today. It's gonna take me about a half hour to get through it. So I uh, hope you guys will hang out. Thanks guys. Act. Then we were told these same individuals, Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi and company, who, if you remember Lafayette Park, went absolutely apoplectic when the president walked across Lafayette Park with uh, a military officer with a sidearm. These same individuals on January 6th were asking where the tanks were and where the armored personnel carriers were. They wanted to turn downtown Washington, D.C. into downtown Kandahar. It's simply just not the purpose of the National Guard. And it's simply not, you wanted us to have belt-fed machine guns on top of mounted SUVs to do what? Mow down American citizens? You, I just did, they want now, the same people that were concerned about optics before January 6th were politically concerned about optics again, and they wanted that show of force. And we said we would do everything the law permitted us to do, but those weapons of, of war, literally, would not be deployed in the streets of Washington, D.C. So Trump offered to provide security on January 6th. If this was the case, then why did they decline to have the National Guard deployed, as Trump wanted? Why weren't riot police and better assets sent out initially? And why would they place this instead on the Capitol Police, who are not equipped or staffed to handle protests of this scale? And even beyond this, at the end of the day, why did they want weapons of war, including tanks and belt-fed machine guns, deployed against American citizens as a way to disperse a protest? The findings raise serious questions on the very people who've given themselves positions to run the investigations. A comprehensive review of evidence suggests that Capitol Police officers flagrantly violated the law in their handling of January 6th. Many of them should face criminal charges. But what does this mean for the other charges that day? Would their behavior of the police officers constitute entrapment? The definition of the crime of entrapment is in whose mind the crime occurred first. If an officer were to do something that he knew would provoke a response that would be arrestable, and if he did that act, that would be the classic definition of entrapment. And he or she would be entrapping the protester to violate the law. If an officer invited somebody into the Capitol building knowing that he was then going to charge them with trespassing, that would be entrapment, yes. From everything that I have looked at in this case, I believe that there was a conscious, um, if not stated, certainly endorsed and supported reaction on the part of uh, the, the police to create a circumstance where they could use force and make arrests. Uh, and it was born out of um, um, what I would characterize as being uh, angry at the protesters for their presence there in their jurisdiction, doing things that they didn't want them to do, being there, not only what they were doing, but who they were. Uh, that seemed to be a theme, and it seemed to be evident by their action, behavior, and conduct. 
which was quite frankly deplorable. The real story of January 6th is not the one that has been largely shown to the public. Normal protocols on a riot were not followed, and many people violated laws they did not know they were violating. The most serious acts of violence were on behalf of the Capitol Police. Yet the violence and at least one killing on their behalf are being ignored. But video evidence shows that many of them could stand trial for crimes on use of force and murder. All of these issues beg the question of why. January 6th is now being used politically and as a justification to create new laws on domestic terrorism. But if the foundation is false, then how can these stand? Crimes were committed on January 6th, but a two-tiered justice system is not justice, and a political investigation from an aggrieved party is not a real investigation. Potential crimes on all sides need to be treated with equal weight. America needs answers on why the main instigators are not charged, who made the calls on security that day, and why. Only through a true and clear presentation of the day's incidents can the nation be assured that justice is being served. And only through this light of true justice can America begin to heal. You're fucking damn right about that shit. Only can true justice will we be able to finally heal. It was very well done from the Epoch Times. It's called The Real Story of January 6th, a documentary by, by Epoch Times. I think it's been under a paywall until tonight. So because it's going to be removed off the paywall tonight, I respectfully gave... Uh, Epoch Times the time to do their paywall stuff. I've been holding this back, wanting to play this so bad, and finally we got the chance to do it together. Thank you guys for hanging out with me. I have four articles that you guys need to see about the FBI coming up here, and then a quick summary of stuff. I'm gonna. It's probably gonna take me a half hour, forty minutes. I'm hoping you guys can hang out. Um, what was the answer on the gold pills over there? You guys good with hanging out? I appreciate you guys very much for being out there today. Already 4,300 gold pills today came in while we were watching that. Putsy Boo, Nancy Lucky, editor-at-large, Tech 264 Sean Joe, Tam Growl, uh, Tech 264 with a bunch of great comments out there. I'm sure there's video surveillance inside the Capitol. And then another great comment. No reasonable officer could justify use of deadly force if she came through as, as they, she, they, she could have been subdued indeed. And then one other great comment from TAC-264, chem agents used to direct movement, but they uh, but they have to give them a route out, and they did not have it. And they don't – basic tactical uh, – uh, problems in the in the way that they handle that things out there there's no doubt about it i'm glad you guys took the time to spend uh watching that here today you guys look like you're good to go over there in the foxhole so you know what with that i'm going to keep it moving today thank you guys all out there for being out there today great crowd out there today bonnie and everyone over there 
Uh, let's see. M. Rich is out there, Federal Bureau of Intimidation. They have, they have definitely been weaponized against the United States of America. And I don't know anything about, I don't know what really happened in Frankfurt, Germany. Okay. Nobody really does. I was just throwing that out there because it is an interesting topic to think about uh, with regards to what their, what their operation that, that uh, Cash was talking about there. Just kind of speculating there a little bit. Cat Girl, great to see you out there. I hope all is well. God bless you. Uh, Jew1451, thanks for the new uh, first time chat. Thanks for joining us here today. Uh, thank you, Cat for resubscribing with Prime. Thank you very much for that. You can use your Prime anywhere and you choose to use it here. Thank you for that. God bless you. T-Rex in the house also resubbing and then the Kawasaki Kid refollowing. Thanks for you for following out there. I appreciate you very much, brother. I appreciate your work and everything that you do. Helios, thanks for your comments out there. I see those as well. I, you, there's a lot of stuff out there that is that is up in the air, right? Nobody really knows what the hell's going on out there and, there, and there's so much information that we have to try to fight our way through that it's very difficult to understand what really is happening out there. I'm with you. Um, so, but, but, uh, there was a lot of stuff that happened that day that, um, <laughs> that was just, you know, um, stuff that I, I, you know, not all of us have really information on, but just interesting things that were happening as I look back at these things now, you know what I mean? For me and my experience of, of, of uh, that day, which to me was just was the most unbelievable day. I've ever had at a rally. It was just so uplifting and so many amazing things uh, about that day. It was really cool. Um, my brother Rob also highlighted this from Woo's News. I don't, I'm not familiar with these guys, but this is about a. I was, I was like, you know what? I'll just spin right down into outside this. the Capitol. Um, they did a another great job in about 17 minutes of of showing some key things. Uh, that, that happened that day. So I thought that was pretty interesting too. Um, if you want that, let me know. I'll get that out there too. But let's get to straight to the rest of the stuff that I got lined up for you guys today without further ado. January 6th prisoner held in a cage like a dog. An article from Gateway Pundit today. In penitentiary yard by Biden regime, desperately needs help. Exclusive audio in an interview uh, from his tiny cell, 33-year-old Andrew uh, Taki of Houston, Texas, described to us what his pretrial detention is like for a non-convicted Trump supporter and a prisoner of the Biden regime in the United States penitentiary Lewisburg. Meanwhile, actual convicted murderers and rapists in the prison are treated better with access to amenities than January Sixers and are prohibited from using. January Sixers are apparently deemed too dangerous to mingle with the actual murderers and gangsters at the penitentiary and are instead forced into a secluded unit where they spend their small allotment of recreation time in individual cages Surrounded by razor wire, it's probably more to protect them. And to be honest, um, so a really good story today talking about, again, just keeping the, those that are being politically persecuted in this country right now at the top of our prayers and the top of our thoughts. I wanted to highlight that is another story out there about, uh, you know, that's happening out there that, um, you know, I guess this is America now. I guess this is the new, uh, this is the new real world in America, I suppose. So I don't know. Uh, it's just, it's so, it's so hard to get through all this stuff because it's, it could be easy to just be any one of us. You know what I'm saying? Trump gave the order to make sure January 6th rally was a safe event. The Pentagon memo that was discussed in that documentary has been released. General Milley's recollect, recollection undercuts months-long efforts by Democrats to suggest Trump wanted to incite violence. Many key questions left unanswered, and uh, no, no doubt about that. Uh, a, ni a nice, a really good article to kind of, you know, discuss with regards to this discussion. Uh, that was kind of covered in the documentary about what cash was saying that the auth that the guard was authorized and the final, the other side of that coin had to be the mayor and Nancy Pelosi. And so that, that side of it never came through. And that's why the discussion about all this is just pretty ridiculous with, with regards to the January 6th narrative. Um, 
The most compelling piece of evidence that Trump wanted to thwart rather than incite violence is contained in a lengthy memo written by Pentagon Inspector General that chronicled the assistance of the Defense Department offered Congress both ahead of and during the riot. In it, the IG recounts a fateful meeting on January 3rd in the White House when then-acting Defense Secretary Christopher Miller, General Milley, uh, Chairman of Joint Chiefs, met with Trump on national security matters. The complete passage, hardly mentioned by Democrats at the hearings or in the news media covering them, is worth absorbing in its entirety. It says this, uh, the well, the whole memo is here, but the main part says this. Mr. Miller and General Milley met with the president at the White House at 5.30 p.m., the IG reported. The primary topic they discussed was unrelated to the scheduled rally. General Milley told us that at the end of the meeting, the president told Mr. Miller that there would be a large number of protesters on January 6th, and Mr. Miller should ensure sufficient National Guard or soldiers would be there to make sure it's a safe event. General Milley told us that Mr. Miller responded, we've got a plan and we've got it covered. The memo is here in this document, and this is um, the Inspector General report from November 16th, 2021. This has been out there in the, you know, in the, in the alternate media routes. We have discussed this before when it first came out, but um, just to further emphasize with documented evidence that <laughs> what uh, Cash is talking about uh, he's not just talking shit out of his ass. There's document documented evidence from the IG showing that it, that what Cash said is exactly what happened. All right, so there's that. Now, we have a couple other FBI articles. These came out last night, and they've been discussed in an, it's an entirety probably by several shows today. We're going to discuss it, too, because I want to read this entire letter from Grassley to Garland to you guys and have it on the record for the podcast. So that's why we're going to spend a little bit of time late today to make sure that gets covered. And then I have uh, Margot Cleveland's seven-minute article about this uh, labeling uh, the laptop misinformation and why it's worse than what it seems. And then also uh, Technofog has a probably three, four-minute read about these FBI whistleblowers. That's part of this as well. So we need to spend some time on this today because the weaponization of the FBI in this country has been just gone too far and it has to be talked about we have to continue to discuss this so i want to read this letter to you from senator grassley to merrick garland and the honorable they say i guess they have to do that in these letters it's like it has the honorable in the you know what i'm saying it has it in the pre you just change the name and they you can't change that even though they're not honorable on May 31st, 2022, I wrote to you regarding likely violations of federal laws, regulations, and FBI uh, and FBI guidelines by Assistant Special Agent in Charge Timothy Theobu Tibal, I guess. I have a fan that for some reason is just started making noise just as I went live and it's driving me freaking nuts right now. I don't I don't know why this fan suddenly wants to act up. It's it sounds like a one of my wires is falling, ticking on it. I'm gonna end up losing the show if I keep screwing with it, though. Can you guys hear that? If you, hopefully you can't. All right, so regulations and FBI guidelines by Assistant Special Agent in Charge Timothy Tebow of Washington Field Office, based on a pattern of active public partners partisanship in his then public social media content in that letter. I, I noted that Congress 
has an, a constitutional responsibility to ensure the executive branch executes the law and uses taxpayer money appropriately in accordance with the congressional intent. In the furtherance of that constitutional responsibility, Congress has an obligation to investigate the executive branch for fraud, waste, abuse, and gross mismanagement, acts which undermine faith in the American people's governmental institutions. Those constitutional and legislative responsibilities apply to this letter to you. My letter also invited individuals, including current and former government employees, to contact me in my office to confidentially report allegations of fraud, waste, and abuse and gross mismanagement by the FBI and the Justice Department officials, including, but not limited to, ASAC T-Ball. In response, my office has received a significant number of protected communications from highly credible whistleblowers. The information provided by my office involves concerns about the FBI's receipt and use of derogatory information related to Hunter Hunter Biden and the FBI's false portrayal of, of acquired evidence as disinformation. The volume and consistency of these allegations substantiate their credibility and necessitate this letter. First, it's been alleged that the FBI developed information in 2020 about Hunter Biden's criminal, financial, and related activity. It is further alleged that in August of 2020, FBI Supervisory Intelligence Analyst Brian Auten opened an assessment which was used by FBI headquarters team to improperly discredit negative Hunter Biden information as disinformation and caused investigative activity to cease. Uh, based on allegations, good to go for the fan. All right, thanks, guys. Based on allegations, verified and verifiable derogatory information on Hunter Biden was falsely labeled as disinformation. The basis for how the FBI headquarters team selected the specific information for inclusion in Auden's assessment is unknown. But in one instance, the focus of the FBI's headquarters team attention involved derogatory information about Hunter Biden. Accordingly, the allegations provided to my office appear to indicate that there was a scheme in place among certain FBI officials to undermine derogatory information connected to Hunter Biden by falsely suggesting it was disinformation. Importantly, it has been alleged by my office that Auten's assessment was opened in August of 2020, which is the same month that Senator Johnson and I received an unsolicited and unnecessary briefing from the FBI that purportedly related to our Biden investigation and a briefing for which the contents were later leaked in order to paint the investigation in a false light. As Senator Johnson and I publicly noted on July 13, 2020, then Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, Senator Mark Warner, Speaker Nancy Pelosi, and Representative Adam Schiff sent a letter with a classified attachment to the FBI to express a purported belief that Congress was the subject of a foreign disinformation campaign. In, on July 13, 2020, the letter included unclassified elements that, among other things, unsuccessfully attempted to tie our investigative work to foreign disinformation. Those unclassified elements were later leaked to the press to try to smear our Biden investigation and, and unrelated foreign disinformation. Then, on July 16, 2020, then-ranking member, Peter, member Peters and then-ranking member Wyden, Peters Wyden, <laughs> requested a briefing on matters related to my and Senator Johnson's Biden investigation from the very same FBI headquarters team that discredited the, the derogatory Hunter Biden information. The concurrent opening of Auten's assessment, the efforts by the FBI headquarters team, and the efforts by the FBI to provide an unnecessary briefing to me and Senator Johnson that provided our Democratic colleagues fodder to falsely accuse us of, a, of advancing foreign disinformation draws serious concern, you think? Second, it has been alleged that in September of 2020, Investigators from the same FBI headquarters team were in communication with the FBI agents responsible for Hunter Biden's information targeted by Auden's assessment. The FBI headquarters team 
uh, investigators placed their findings with respect to whether reporting was disinformation in a restricted access subfile reviewable only by the particular agents responsible for uncovering the specific information. This is problematic because it does not allow for the proper oversight and opens the door to improper influence. Third, in October of 2020, an avenue of additional derogatory Hunter Biden information reporting was ordered closed at the direction of the ASAC Tibol, uh, Tibol, how the hell you say this dude's name, Tibol, um, my office has been made aware that the FBI agents responsible for this information were interviewed by the FBI headquarters team in furtherance of Auten's assessment. It's been alleged that the FBI headquarters team suggested to the FBI agents that the information was at risk of disinformation. However, according to allegations, all of the reporting was either verified or verifiable via criminal search warrants. Huh. Criminal search warrants, huh? Interesting. In addition, ASAC Tiabo uh, allegedly ordered the matter closed without providing a valid reason as required by FBI guidelines. Wow. Despite the matter being closed in such a way that the investigative avenue might be open later, it's alleged that FBI officials, including ASAC Tebow, uh, subsequently attempted to improperly mark the matter in FBI systems so that it could not be opened in the future. Wow. The aforementioned allegations put a finer point on concerns that I have raised for many years about political considerations infecting the decision-making process of the Justice Department and the FBI. If these allegations are true and accurate, accurate, the Justice Department and the FBI are and have been institutionally corrupted at their very core to a point in which the United States Congress and the American people will have no confidence in the equal application of the law. That is a very powerful statement right there. Do you understand what he means by that? <laughs> That is a very powerful and very permanent statement. I'm going to read it again. If these allegations are true and accurate, the Justice Department and the FBI are and have been institutionally corrupted to their very core to the point in which the United States Congress and the American people will have no confidence in the equal application of the law. Wow, that is huge. Attorney General Garland and Director Ray simply put, based on the allegations that I've received from numerous whistleblowers, you have systematic and existential problems within your agencies. You have an obligation to the country to take these allegations seriously, immediately investigate and take steps to institute fixes to these and other matters before you. In light of the serious allegations and my ongoing investigation into Justice Department and FBI misconduct, I expect you to provide the following no later than August 8th, 2022. That is about, what, two weeks? As a preliminary matter, so that Congress can perform an objective and independent review of the alleged misconduct. Wow. The case file for the Auten Assessment. All records derived from reporting on derogatory information linked to Hunter Biden, James Biden, and their foreign business relationships that was overseen under approval, guidance, and purview of ASAC Tebow on January 1st, 2020 to present. Holy shit, dude. <laughs> All records related to derogatory information on Hunter Biden, James Biden, and their foreign business relationships. This is going to lead to something very serious in our future. <laughs> Now I see why Trump's saying he might be back sooner than later. All leads <laughs> sent to the WFO that were under the purview of ASAC Tebow and were ordered closed by Tebow and or denied for opening by Justice Department's public integrity system. 
Five, all opened and closed cases initiated by the WFO that were under the purview of ASAC Tebow that were all ordered closed by ASAC Tebow and are denied for opening by the Just Department of Public Inter- What else did he cover up? What else did you hide there, buddy? <laughs> oh, man. Governmental Correctional Device, also known as the Gallows. <laughs> With respect to the August 2020 FBI briefing given to Senator Johnson and me, a copy of the FBI 302 for the briefing, all intelligence reporting, products, and analysis that have formed the basis of the briefing, the names of the persons who recommended that Senator Johnson and I be briefed, a description of the process for deciding to brief us, and all records including emails related to the briefing. Sincerely, ranking member on the Committee on Judiciary, Chuck Grassley. Have a nice freaking day. Oh, man. Oh, wow. All right. Um, Cat Girl, who has, who has the reply that I saw out there rolling around? Did you Have you seen that yet? There was a reply. Let me find it. Um, DOJ Horowitz writes, oh, uh, Halls of Justice has it. Washington Examiner article. Here it is. FBI official may have violated the Hatch Act with anti-Trump post DOJ watchdog by Jerry Dunleavy at three o'clock June seventeenth. No, that is the previous one. Okay, that is the one from a while back. All right, never mind. Do you really think they will turn that over? Um, you're going to start seeing some things happen. I think on that front, I do believe that you're going to start seeing some some these people are caught in treason in treasonous acts and there are high levels government things that these people don't understand that are in place that uh, will hold them accountable they cannot continue to act this way and think that they are above the law it's not going to happen it's not going to happen the the rule of law in this country will be restored mark my words and these people who think they are above the law forget about it they will be held accountable one way or another I need to hear what Margo says. I need to hear what Margo's analysis of this is. FBI's false labeling of Biden laptop as disinformation is even worse than it seems. Here's why, says Margo. Nice picture of Hunter Margo. <laughs> this scandal is no longer just about the Biden family. It's about every member of law enforcement and intelligence communities who put our country at risk by failing to do their jobs. It seems to me that um, continuity of government is now have, has the legal and constitutional uh, footing to declare a coup and insurrection in this country. And it's not by president Trump, but it seems to me that the continuity of government, high levels of intelligence agencies in this country now have legal basis to declare a coup and an insurrection by the Biden regime. That's what I see. FBI whistleblowers claim that agents opened a sham investigation into Hunter Biden to brand reliable and verifiable derogatory evidence as disinformation, according to explosive news released yesterday by Chuck Grassley. If true, beyond exposing the FBI's role in running cover for the Biden family, the whistleblowers claims prove significant for a second reason by failing to thoroughly vet the evidence in his possession related to Hunter Biden, which included the hard drive for the MacBook Hunter had abandoned at a repair shop. The intelligence community ignored a momentous national security threat, namely that Russians potentially possessed a second Hunter Biden laptop. 
Late Monday, Grassley issued a news release citing multiple FBI whistleblowers, including those in senior positions who raised the alarm by tampering about tampering by senior FBI and Justice Department officials in potentially sensitive investigations, including investigative activity involving derogatory information on Hunter Biden's financial and foreign business activities. According to the Iowa Republican, the whistleblowers alleged that the Washington Field Office assistant agent in charge, Timothy Thiebaud, and other FBI officials sought to falsely portray disinformation evidence acquired from multiple sources that FBI that provided the FBI derogatory information related to Hunter Biden's financial and foreign business activities, even though some of that information had already been or could be verified. As we discussed in the letter, they said through criminal referrals. That's a huge part of this story that that is just cannot get left behind. It could be verified because there is there's criminal proceedings in place. There's warrants. There's, <laughs> there's stuff in the legal system that you can search for. Wow. The news release added that in August of 2020, FBI supervisory intelligence analyst Brian Auden opened an assessment, which was used by a team of agents at the FBI headquarters to improperly discredit and falsely claim that derogatory information about Biden's activities was disinformation, causing investigative activity and sourcing to be shut down. The FBI headquarters team allegedly placed their assessment findings in restricted access subfolders, effectively flagging sources and derogatory evidence related to Hunter Biden as disinformation while shielding the justification for such findings from scrutiny, according to Grassley. The Iowa senator claimed that Tebow also reportedly ordered the closure of a stream of information related to Hunter Biden and sought to improperly mark the matter with FBI systems in a way that would prevent it from being reopened in the future. The FBI headquarters team allegedly claimed that reporting from the stream uh, from the stream was at risk of disinformation, but the whistleblowers told Grassley that all of the information obtained through that stream was already verified and verifiable. As we have discussed, the FBI whistleblowers charges, if accurate, are devastating and mean that the time at the time that Hunter Biden was already reportedly under investigation by Delaware U.S. Attorney's Office, rather than work with the agents already investigating then candidate Joe Biden's son, FBI headquarters initiated its own assessment. Then, according to the whistleblowers, agents improperly shut down sources, falsely framed evidence as disinformation and hid the reasoning for that determination from other FBI agents behind restricted areas. The press release also suggests that the FBI's assessment served to frame the investigation uh, Grassley and Johnson were conducting into Hunter Biden's foreign business dealings uh, as tainted by Russian disinformation. As part of that investigation, in May of 2020, Senate Republicans issued a subpoena seeking documents from the younger Biden and asked that for information related to more than a dozen entities, including Burisma, which was the Ukrainian company that paid Hunter nearly $1 million a year to sit on its board. Yeah. With the Trump-Biden presidential contest in full force, Grassley and Johnson's investigation into Hunter prompted pushback from Democrats, with Democrat members of the Gang of Eight sending a letter in a classified addendum in July 2020 to FBI Director Christopher Wray specifically citing... Johnson, Grassley, Probe, and Hunter Biden as a reason for an urgent briefing from Congress about foreign disinformation. The following month, Democrat Senators Gary Peters of Michigan and Ron Wyden of Oregon wrote Grassley and Johnson and requested that the members of uh, Senate's Homeland Security and Finance Committees, which they chaired, receive a briefing from the FBI's 
influence task force related to their ongoing Biden investigations. According to August 5th, 2020, Washington Post article, the Democrats have requested the member of uh, bre- requested the member briefing for months, and the FBI and the U.S. intelligence agencies have previously briefed committee staff on possible foreign disinformation. The FBI later briefed both Grassley and Johnson on August 6, 2020. But according to the senators, that briefing was both both unsolicited and unnecessary and failed to provide any new information to the senators or any specific allegations that they had received disinformation as part of the Hunter Biden investigation. Given that FBI supervisory intelligence agent analysis Brian Otten According to the whistleblowers, opened his assessment into Hunter in August. The whistleblowers' allegations raised serious questions concerning whether Democrats pressured the FBI into launching an investigation into Hunter as a pretext to provide the desired disinformation briefing. Interesting. Further, in April of 2021, someone leaked the fact that the FBI had briefed Grassley and Johnson on August 6th, with the Washington Post running a story painting the senators as reckless in their investigation into Hunter Biden's foreign business dealings by suggesting they ignored FBI warnings and thus may have been manipulated by the Kremlin. As the Wall Street Journal reported at the time, it seems possible that the FBI set up two members of Congress for political attack under the guise of a defensive briefing. The whistleblower's accusations then, when coupled with the media coverage, suggest that an agent from FBI headquarters opened an assessment to provide cover for Hunter Biden to eliminate source trails for the investigation into then-candidate Joe Biden's son and to taint the legitimate inquiry into Hunter Biden's business dealings to taint the legitimate inquiry into Hunter Biden's uh, business dealings. That scandal, however, represents but half the issue because the whistleblower statements, if true, suggest the assessment of Hunter was a sham. And as a sham, the agents would not vet the evidence available to them, which would have included the Hunter, the Mac top that, that, that Hunter had abandoned at the repair shop in Delaware. The FBI seized that laptop in December of 2019 after being alerted to his existence in October. At that time, FBI agents were reportedly told that in addition to pornography, the computer had information dealing with foreign interests and pay for pay, pay for play scheme light linked to the former administration and lots of foreign money. Mm hmm. What the FBI did after seizing the laptop in December of 2019 is unknown. <laughs> However, given that the FBI was reportedly told it contained a pay-for-play scheme linked to the former administration and lots of foreign money, any legitimate investigation would have involved reviewing the laptop for information relevant to Grassley and Johnson's investigations. And had the FBI reviewed the laptop, agents would have discovered a video recording capturing Hunter Biden saying that in 2018, another laptop went missing when he was partying in Las Vegas and that Hunter's believed it was stolen by a group of Russians. The video then showed a prostitute asking Hunter if he was worried that the Russian thieves would try to blackmail him. He said, yeah, in some way, yeah, Hunter replied, noting that his father is running for president and that I talk about it all the time. Hunter had also noted that the computer had tons of compromising videos on it. But it was not just the compromising videos of Hunter of concern, but the financial information likely on that laptop that could implicate his father in the pay-to-play scandal. If that information were in the hands of the Russians, as Hunter believed, the national security risk was huge and demanded the intelligence community conduct a defensive briefing of Joe Biden. Instead, it appears from the whistleblower's comments that a non-investigation took place with legitimate sources and evidence falsely categorized as disinformation. And then rather than provide Biden a defensive briefing, the senators received one. 
This scandal is no longer just about the Biden family. It is about every member of law enforcement and intelligence communities who put our country at risk by failing to do their jobs. Do your job. Too much to freaking ask. <sighs> All right. Techno Fog has uh, a letter out as well. If it's just going to be re saying everything that I've already said twice, I'm not going to read it all. <laughs> um, these allegations are true. It's a damning depiction of the FBI's leadership, and it provides their efforts to influence the 2020 election. This is the second, if not third straight election the FBI has meddled in, given the influence of Trump-Russia investigation and its unlawful origins with the FBI had... Over the 2018 midterms, this is Technofog's uh, substack today. Grassley's whistleblowers alleged that in August 2020, FBI headquarters improperly discredited negative information. The context and the timing is important, and this is what's and this was leading up to the 2020 election. Who benefited from this scheme? Democrat candidate Joe Biden, and it appears the FBI scheme furthered the entrance of congressional Democrats. And here's how that happened. On July 13th, 2020, Democrat leaders Chuck Schumer, Mark Warner, Nancy Pelosi, and Adam Schiff sent this letter to the FBI alleging that Congress was a subject of a foreign disinformation campaign. The Democrats demanded that the FBI provide a classified debriefing, defensive briefing, on the issue of foreign disinformation and that the briefing draw on all source intelligence information and analysis. Parts of that letter were leaked to tie the congressional, congressional Hunter Biden investigation to foreign disinformation. Three days later, on July 16th, 2020, Democrat Senators Gary Peters and Ron Wyden made their own demand of the FBI Intelligence Committee briefing related to foreign, purported foreign interference. According to Grassley, the, these Democrat efforts resulted in unnecessary briefing from the FBI and in August 2020 related to disinformation. And then, then there's the issue of the FBI headquarters interfering in the Hunter Biden investigation. Grassley states, as we've talked, already talked about that, the FBI headquarters team made findings to whether certain reporting was disinformation, and then they limited access to those findings. This begs the question, what were those findings, and did they conflict with the popular narrative falsely peddled by the Democrats in the media and foreign intelligence officials that Hunter Biden materials were disinformation? The FBI was reticent to share this information before the election when then-Director of National Intelligence John Ratcliffe stated there was no intelligence to support allegations of Russian disinformation efforts tied to Hunter Biden materials. And the FBI responded that they had nothing to add at this time. Of course, this is apparently now disproven. The FBI has something to add. They just, they just didn't want to share it with the American people. Technofog today in the Substack. So, all right, there we go. We got um, we got that huge story covered today. I wanted to make sure that we got that into the fold today. Uh, let's let's just uh, do a quick summary of everything else that I got left, and then I'll let you guys go here today. Thank you guys for hanging out with me for an extra half hour. Uh, be about another five or ten minutes or so, guys. So here we go. Speaking from Julie Kelly today of corrupt, politically weaponized FBI status hearing now on a new trial for the two remaining defendants in the Whitmer kidnapping false flag. Latest proposed jury instructions by the DOJ. The new trial begins on August 9th in Grand Rapids. So there we go. The timing of all this is going to be very interesting. Uh, Tory leadership TV debate pulled off the air after Kate Mc McCann fainted live on air. There was a debate between the two left uh, re remaining uh, candidates over there in the United Kingdom. It's immense. And if he succeeds in Ukraine, uh, he's not well, going to stop happened. that. He's going to challenge 
the freedom and democracy. The host collapsed and fainted in the middle of the debate. I was just wondering if she's uh, vaxxed, honestly. So that happened over in England today. Or yeah, I guess it was what this morning or something. Bereza versus the U.S. Coast Guard as Sydney Powell has a new case to talk about. I want to bring this to your guys' attention today. She has filed a, uh, on behalf of the U.S. Coast Guard, defending the Republic along with co-counsel Dale Sarin and Simon Peter Serrano of the Silent Majority Foundation, filed a class action lawsuit against the Coast Guard, the Department of Defense, the Food and Drug Administration, and the Department of Homeland Security. In this class action, defending the Republic has also alleged that the implementation of the Coast Guard's COVID-19 vaccine is unlawful, and these service members are ordered to receive unlicensed vaccine under the emergency use authorization as if they were FDA-licensed vaccines. We are also challenging the COVID-19 vaccine mandate itself as unlawful and asking the court to enjoin the Coast Guard from enforcing the vaccine mandate against all Coast Guard members who have religious objections against these vaccines. That from Sydney Powell today. I'll keep an eye on that case, and when we hear more on that, I will let you guys know. From Captain Keschel today, here in my hometown, there is some news. <laughs> We will keep fighting for decertification in this country and in this county and in this state. My, my county, Winnebago County, Wisconsin, we demand the Wisconsin State Legislature dissolve and defund the Wisconsin Elections Commission, formally instigate and certify any electronic voting machines, complete the ongoing investigations into the 2020 election, including the Michael Gableman investigation in the Wisconsin County District Attorney's pursuit to... Uh, pursue to conviction voter fraud in nursing homes ballot harvesting and that wisconsin county republican parties support this resolution and communicate it to their legislative representatives and district attorneys from the republican party the winnebago county republican party in wisconsin we have another county to step up and demand decertification of the fraudulent election step by step Day by day, we will keep pushing to get the truth out there and we will keep pushing for a fraudulent election to be decertified under a malevolent administration. Another great news today for coming to you from Wisconsin, this fucking little scumbag, Tom Nelson. Let me tell you about this little fucking punk. I told him, I warned him. I said, listen to me, punk. You keep acting like this. There are people that are going to hold your little bitch ass accountable. And suddenly this little bitch ass punk Nazi, Tom Nelson has decided that he has to drop out of the Senate race because of big money. Uh, no, Mr. Tom Nelson, you sedition is fucking Nazi piece of shit. I hope you were served with a subpoena. My friend, have a nice day coming to you from Chicago where the Bears have decided in their brand new multi-million dollar stadium that was just built not long ago isn't good for them anymore. Tell us how you really feel, Don. Tell you what, dude, that dude. <laughs> Why are the Chicago Bears moving to Arlington Heights? Hey, Lori Lightfoot, what's going on over there in Chicago, huh? The Chicago Bears have decided because of the crime wave in Wisconsin due to Lori Lightfoot's stupid moronic policies of releasing criminals back on their own recognizance back into the streets 
The Chicago Bears have decided to turn down a $2.2 billion offer from the city to keep the Bears in Chicago. And it appears that the Bears are going to be moving to Arlington Heights Finally, in Arlington International Racecourse property, where the Bears are buying a 326-acre property for $197 million and going to build a new massive stadium on, on the land. So there you go. Elections have consequences, and now you just lost a serious revenue stream coming into the city of Chicago. Nice work, Lightfoot, dumbass. The American Spectator has an article that was uh, highlighted today by President Trump that he highlighted Jeffrey Lord for writing. I just wanted to highlight it for you guys today if I had time to read it to you. Obviously, we don't. But the New York Post, Washington Journal, get Trump wrong. Six six editorials from the Post and the Wall Street Journal and Jeffrey Lord's analysis. That's an interesting article that President Trump uh, retrieved today, earlier today. All right. That's pretty much all I got. Let's check in with FCCED and we'll, wipe it. we'll uh, let you guys go today. Thanks for hanging out. And we will get back bear, boo bears. Um I am a huge Bears fan. At least I haven't I haven't actually watched a damn Bears game. I think I've seen two Bears games in the last four years. So uh, they have just completely ruined football. And it's not even the same game anymore, so I can't even watch it anymore. Deutsche Bank settles money laundering case for our $7.1 million. Huh, really? What do you mean? Deutsche Bank settled a pro by Frankfurt, huh? $7.1 million. They settled it. That's always how that works. Producer Jason Van Eman sentenced to 21 years in prison over a $60 million fraud scheme. U.S. placing former Paraguayan president on the corruption list. <laughs> the United States places former Paraguayan president on the corruption list. Did they add the whole administration and everyone in D.C. to that list, too? Can we, can we just put all of D.C. on that list? Do you mind? If you, can we do that? No, we don't. We don't. We, uh, the Paraguayan president is probably a patriot. <laughs> Guatemala's former economics minister pleads guilty to using Miami bank accounts to pay for bribes. And a film producer pleads guilty in a fraud investment scams. That's all that are new from FCC D today. Finally, some new ones. Uh, the U S attorney charges, uh, four in a separate insider trading cases, nine individuals, including former U S congressman, former FBI agent trainee, tech company executives, and former investment bankers charged with insider trading. I'll wait for the rest of the people in D.C. to be charged with that. But <laughs> here you go. There it is again. Finally, we'll wrap the show up today with the last couple of things. Internet is a buzz after mysterious red light spot in the Atlantic Ocean. I don't know. It's probably aliens. We're all going to die. Huma Abedin looks glam as she shops in New York City. Her first public sighting since the rumors of the budding romance with Bradley Cooper. Y'all know how these women get treated when they're put into positions of power around around Hillary Clinton, they're usually trafficked women. And the buzz around kind of the story around today is this bag and what is behind it. Those of you who have done the OUI dig with regards to human trafficking of models, who was not looking too good? And if she was, tra- if she is still being trafficked potentially, and Bradley Cooper was one of her, you know, um, uh, <laughs> boyfriends or Johns? Is it is it is it better to call Bradley Cooper a John? Huma is is that what your life is not reduced to? You're not looking too good out there. So, anyways, those of you that have done the dig on the OUI bag that she has today, 
that was my commentary on that. Is Bradley Cooper one of your Johns, and are you being trafficked, Huma? Because that's we know that's exactly how the Clinton t- team gets people to, you know, do their dirty work. Coming to you from reignitefreedom.com, the global walkout is being organized. <laughs> yeah, I figured, you know, we got a bunch of digital soldiers and activists here. We could help them in their endeavors to let the world know that we're not going to take it. And if we have to organize a global walkout, to make you people understand that we're not going to take it. Incoming EU members strike a deal to cut Russian gas use, which is a very interesting story from Inside Paper today. That's a very important story with regards to strategic concerns with regards to Russia and this whole thing that President Trump has been talking about and as well as us activists been like, you guys are dumbasses for, for letting Russia monopolize your energy. A major move on that front with, the part, with regards to the European Union. The reason why that story is important is because it is another rift in the unity around the European Union. Uh, it's breaking. The European Union is breaking, and it's a very important time, and it's watch as it happens. Watch as the European Union becomes no longer a viable part of, um, a relevant part of the future. Las Vegas real estate professional pleads guilty to tax evasion. MS-13 member sentenced to prison for racketeering conspiracy involving murder. Hmm. There's an interesting one. Who's this guy? Mara Salvatrucha. That guy, 19 years old, sentenced to uh, prison for racketeering conspiracy. I wonder if the FBI is involved in that racketeering conspiracy. Anybody want to ask them? Justice Department and National Labor Relations Board announced partnership to protect workers. Justice Department commemorates 32nd anniversary of the American Disabilities Act and other, other stuff with regards to reproductive rights. And that, my friend, is another extended version of Uncensored Day today. Thank you guys very much for hanging out with me today. I appreciate you guys so much. God bless you all. Thank you for all the gold pills today. We had 46, 10 gold pills today, and we got a lot of information covered today. Thank you guys very much for hanging out. I appreciate you all. Helios, Chris, Just Mojo. Who else is out there on Rumble? Fly Free, J, uh, J.D. Rish, uh, many others out there lurking and hanging out. Fly Free, thank you guys over there on Rumble for hanging out today. God bless you all. Thanks very much. And then finally, all the all the crowd, the great crowd over here on uh, on Twitch. Thanks, guys, for hanging out with me for an extended show today. Catgirl and T-Rex9, thanks for the refollows and the resubs. I appreciate that very much. Much love to you guys out there. The Real Cam DG and Childman and True Long 69 new follows over there on Twitch. Thanks, guys. And with that, I want to say we'll be back here tomorrow for another edition of Uncensored Abe. I want to say God bless you all. Have a great evening. Much love. Treat the word impossible as nothing more than motivation. Relish the opportunity to be an outsider. Embrace that label. Being an outsider is fine. Embrace the label. Because it's the outsiders who change the world and who make a real and lasting difference.